Steve and Kevin delve into cons of Tarkir for vintage on episode 39 of So Many Insane Plays. Welcome to episode 39 of So Many Insane Plays, our Cons of Tarkir review. I'm Kevin Crone with Stephen Menendian. Hi, everyone. If you have any questions or concerns, you can tweet us at Many Insane Plays, email us at So Many Insane Plays Podcast at gmail.com, or leave feedback on Eternal Central, MTGCast, or TheManadrain.com. Not many announcements this week. Steve, you have updates to your Gush book incoming still? I wish. <laughs> no, I, I, I've I, been sidetracked, sidelined by this super vintage, vintage super league uh-huh. that's prevented me from making much progress. But I have been making some edits to some sections. I've just got to get it edited and we'll get it out. It's, it's a, a very long book, <laughs> but it's really worth the wait. wait. No kidding. I mean, it just, just in Word document, I think it's over 400 pages. Jeez. That sounds awesome. And we want to remind our audience, although most of you probably know, that Eternal Weekend is coming up, October 24 through 26. Steve and I will both be there, and we will do a preview show that goes up shortly before the event itself in a couple of weeks. So we encourage all of our audience to be there. And if you want to stop by and say hi, if you have not in the past, please uh, be our guest. Kevin, are you playing in the prelim event or the Legacy Champs on Saturday? I'll be playing preliminary vintage stuff on Saturday. No Legacy yeah. for me. You? Yeah, the same boat. Yeah. Also, really fun, Jason Jaco and Eternal Central is organizing a 93-94 tournament Friday, Friday. Cool. I'll be flying in too late to make it, but folks who can make it, they should check it out. We'll post the link in the show notes. Sweet. Yep, some old school magic on Friday at Eternal Weekend. It only fits. It only fits. But we definitely need to talk a little bit about the latest updates in the Vintage Super League. So let's do that next. Steve, you just completed what I think a lot of people would call a pretty epic match. Specifically, a pretty epic game uh, against LSV in the Vintage Super League this week. Well, what can you tell us about it? Well, LSV was playing sort of the Mark Lanigra style, 2000, circa 2012 Vintage Championship uh, Grixis control deck. Very similar to Mark's deck. It might even be a carbon copy, uh, except I think LSV has maybe like a Notion Thief and a Fact instead of two more Jaces. And Deluge makes an appearance. And Deluge makes an appearance. Yep. Um, and I'm playing my sort of standard Rug Delver deck with some heavy metagame adjustments for LSV and Chris Pakula. And we, and actually, we should just invite folks to listen to our last podcast because we talked a little bit about the Super Vintage Super League. So if they have questions about how it's structured or organized or more details about it, check out that podcast. People Actually, we got a lot of positive feedback about that, Kevin. It's good material, and it's really, really good content for Vintage. So uh, against LSV, I was playing, a, like I said, a Rug Delver deck that had maybe two or three more anti-shop cards than normal in the sideboard and two or three more anti 
blue control cards for Rich Shea and LSV. And um, I, I did a, a decent amount of testing, but basically by design, my deck is able to is designed to sort of go into a, a pretty hard control role against blue decks. And um, against LSV's deck, it's really difficult to, to seize a strong tempo role. I mean, I can go tempo, but that's just as often trumped by his, you know defeated by his trumps. You know, LSV's deck is capable of just winning with a very early, very early on with a big tinker or assembling the time ball combo. And when you're a Delver pilot, if you go all in on sort of the Delver plan or the Pyromancer plan, as opposed to trying to assemble a control hand. You know, you can't outrace a t- a, a per- your opponent assembling a tinker and forcing it through. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of, in some ways, necessary that you go the control role. And my deck really f- is, is capable of doing that for a key reason that's kind of hard to describe. But basically, it has to do with, you know, Alan Comer's design principles, going back to Turbo Xerox and the early Grow decks from Ancient Extended. And the basic principle is that when you design a blue deck that has a very light mana base, um, you have a density of cantrips and a lot of virtual card advantage that is facilitated by Gush. So Gush generates additional land drops with, on a tiny mana base, and the cards like Preordain, Ponder, and Brainstorm help you knit together and make your land drops in the early game, and in the late game, they allow you to generate superior card, equal- card quality per draw. And that's just on top of the natural sort of card quality draw advantage of the fact that, you know, the big blue control decks have 26, 25 mana sources, whereas I have only 18, 19, 17 um, total. So, um, you know, the longer the game goes, the, the more I'm able to uh, reinforce my control position. Now, the, the thing that Randy and Luis were sort of saying is that they have, quote, haymakers. I think it's overstated to an extent. Really, the three cards they have that are haymakers <laughs> are Library of Alexandria, Tinker, and Yawgmoth Will. And really, it's Tinker and Yawgmoth's will that I that I really have to focus on countering. Um, and if you can sort of focus all your resources on those two cards, you know, it, it, there are things like Jace that can be problematic, but I can burn that out and I can, you know, attack into it with the Pyromancer. Tactically, I have a lot of ways of dealing with those cards. It's the Yawgmoth's will and the Tinker that you really need to address. So, I mean, people don't understand the matchup and people who play Rug Delver don't really understand it. It's not as simple as simply saying that I'm the control deck it's about role flexibility. It's about sort of assessing the situation, the game state, and choosing the role that's best for that game state. And Rug Delver really allows the pilot to do that very well um, because it can go such a strong aggro role and it can go such a strong tempo role. And part of that is just Young Pyromancer itself. Young Pyromancer is, is unlike Tarmogoyf, can basically play defense and offense simultaneously. You can attack mm. and defend... Um, and and then people underestimate the fact that cards like Spell Pierce and Flusterstorm are not can be artificially boosted in the late game with a variety of, of, of tactics, including Null Rod, which you know. And part of it is when you think about the haymakers that they have, they're cards that you're going to have huge counter battles over. So it, even like on turn 30, which is where my my game two uh, against LSV got to, which is I would say extremely rare and vintage. Granted, <laughs> um, you know, cards like Spell Pierce can become highly relevant if there are five or six or seven spells on the stack. Um, you know, um, because you're fighting over those key haymakers. The argument that LSB has haymakers overlooks the fact that there are that there are haymakers that elicit huge fights. <laughs> and, and therefore, cards like Flusterstorm become sort of automatically relevant. 
you can't sort of just reduce it to the fact that they've got haymakers and I've got a lot of answers. Um, so, so the way I approach the matchup is that um, pre-board, um, well, um, pre-board, I felt like it would be very tight. But post-board, I felt like I was strongly advantaged, partly because I'm bringing in three pyroblasts, a flush of storm, and a null rod. Um, but the main thing I was concerned about was LSV getting a library, which I can't counter, and forces me into a, 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 a an aggro role that my deck is not post-board designed to to, to, um, to play. I'm not going to get too much in the specifics of my sideboarding plans because I I uh, streamed myself replaying the match from my perspective um, on uh, on my Twitch channel. So we'll post a, that in the show notes. But um, it, it was a great match. I will talk a little bit more about the match itself. I mentioned it went 30, 30 turns. And I think that I did manage to sort of illustrate how my deck generates card advantage and how you win that game. I just made a couple play mistakes, and LSV played flawlessly. Um, the main mistake I made was I Snapcaster made a, uh, a Tinker that he played. I Snapcaster made in response to a Tinker he played. And um, I had two options in my graveyard for countering Tinker. One was a Flusterstorm. The other was a Pyroblast. And I only played the Flusterstorm because I thought that um, I had enough Storm. I was counting the Storm. It was like Tinker, Force of Will, um, it was Tinker, Force, Drain, Snapcaster, were the four cards preceding yeah. the, the Fluster. Flusterstorm. And, and, and he had five mana up, and I knew that. And for some reason, I counted it twice, and I thought I had six. It would be Flusterstorm would generate one more one more uh, um, storm. So it was just a, it was just a mental error. Um, so anyway, um, the, uh, the the main mistake I made was I yeah I, so he played uh, he played Tinker I played Force he mana drained and I Snapcaster Mage and I selected Flusterstorm and he paid for all five so I had to play the Flusterstorm from my hand. Had I not done that I would have had it, it, multiple things would have gone better for me. I could have had the Flusterstorm for the Yawgmoth Swell at the end of the game. I could have I could have uh, pitched a Flusterstorm to my misdirection instead of the other misdirection so I could have misdirected a Bolt that he played on other one of my creatures. Mm-hmm. But the other mistake I made probably there were a couple other mistakes that were a little bit more subtle but you don't often get into a position where you're afraid of decking so as many times as i tested the matchup i never got close to decking and when i had about 10 cards left in my library i was afraid of decking even though i had a trigon predator and two pyromancers in my deck and time walk um and so i i overvalued the bolt on the the trigon and i forced it pitching a card leaving me with just one force and a blue card in my hand had i not done that i would have been able to stop his yawgmoth well i believe i would have been able to win because i had in my library of eight cards pyromancer and time walk and a bolt so you know if i can just pyromancer time walk and they were in the top four cards by the way as you can see at the very end of the video um i would have been able to pyromancer time walk and bolt his blocker if necessary and i only have to attack a couple times to win the game he's at 15 life um you know um if I can generate even two tokens, that's four damage a turn. Um, the, the the other thing I could have done is when he bolted the um, Pyromancer, I did not gush in response to generate a token. And the reason I didn't is because I would have gone from 10 to 8 cards and then my draw step go to 7. But I almost certainly should have gushed there to generate the token. As well, I would have. there's a chance I could have drawn a, a mental misstep. But more importantly, um, I would have been in a better position to sort of just deploy multiple creatures and then and, and shift to a, an, an aggro role, maintaining my double force in hand. Um, you know, it, it's just one of those things where the game goes super long. You're eventually going to make a mistake. And in my stream, I, I pointed out a number of other mistakes. Um, it's just a, a crazy back and forth. And probably the craziest thing of all is that the match on YouTube has like 11,000 views right now. So... <laughs> 
<laughs> I think that that shouldn't be understated is that uh, a single match of vintage on YouTube with 11,000 plus views, probably more by the time our audience listens to this, I think that, that Wizards really needs to stand up and take notice of how popular one game of vintage or one match of vintage is on YouTube. And I think I think that match, you know, really does illustrate some of the best aspects of the format. You know, it highlights cards like Yawgmoth's Will and Tinker and all the counter spells and shows you how skill intensive the format is and it really debunks the myths about the format being a, a turn one format. Um, and people really gravitate to those kinds of tactics. So hopefully it generates a lot of more interest in the format. Yeah, I agree with you. That match, especially game two, demonstrates just so many things about deck selection, yeah. all the preparation you mentioned, the metagaming, role assignments. Uh, yeah. Both of you, on, on both sides of the match, you guys both went in understanding something fundamental about your specific matchup. Everything yeah. you just described, but Luis also understood how to, specifically how to value Ancestral Recall in the matchup. That's right. I mean, we didn't even mention the fact that I misdirected his Ancestral and resolved mine. Right. To I, I drew six cards, and, and then he came back and, and, and won. It's, in some respects, it's better that he won, because if I had won, maybe the match wouldn't be quite as interesting for folks, or, <laughs> or pedagogical. Yeah, that's a good point, too. So it has a ton going on. We'll have the link to that specific match in our show notes, of course, in addition to general Vintage Super League links as well. If I could just add a footnote to that, you know, so some of the criticisms criticisms of the earlier weeks is that there have been a lot of, let's say, suboptimal play. But I thought that the matches this particular week, week six, were all phenomenal, all interesting. I mean, <laughs> Rich Shea's match against uh, Chris Pakula, that game three was just completely fascinating. There was like mirror Battlesphere standoffs. The Dredge versus Mono Blue matchup was completely fascinating. Mm-hmm. The, the Mono Blue, Eric Froelich had Propaganda, Back to Basics, and Trinket Mage for Cage, all in his opening hand. And in, in Tom Martell, got to give him credit, played just so superbly. I, I just think this week, whole, entire week six, the whole playlist is just a, a wonderful showcase for the format. Yeah, absolutely. Couldn't agree more. And it's not over yet. <laughs> a couple more no, weeks I- to go and the top four still. Right, I'm sitting. I'm, I'm not complaining about my five-one position, even though I could have been in pulp. As you know, uh, um, so the, just just to reiterate something, this is called King of the Hill format, which is where the first seed does only plays the person who gets to second place. So the the third and fourth players will battle to play the second place player, and then the second place player will battle the first place player. So the first place player basically gets to bypass two matches. Yeah. So you really want to get the first seed in this tournament. Yeah, you're still in the best possible position to to get first seed at this point. <laughs> Tied with LSV. I think we should move on and talk about our journey into Nick's report card. All right, lay it on us. Well, Steve, you should be pleased by this report card because I think my estimation is that you were the big winner of the two of us. I'm actually surprised. Okay. Well, we'll see. We'll see. But it was uh, uh, no big blowouts this time, but we've got some interesting things to discuss. <clears throat> First up, Aegis of the Gods. That's our grizzly bear with hexproof. I was not very high on it. You said six. I said two. The actual was eight. So you take the the win on this one with a pretty accurate prediction. And Aegis was simply a little bit more huh. utility than, than <laughs> I expected it to be. <laughs> That's pretty close. <laughs> it, it is pretty close. And humans just generally stepped up and made a few more top eight appearances than they had been, I think. That's so funny. And as a result I mean, of this card. It's comical. I mean, when you predicted two, I predicted six. I mean, come on. And it was eight. <laughs> you know, it's like... Yeah. 
we're both in the same ballpark. That's pretty funny. Yeah, you were you got the win on this one, and your analysis uh, of the amounts was was pretty accurate. The next interesting one, mana confluence. Now we knew this was going to be heavily played, so it's just kind of a matter of a number of factors. You said 18, I said 15. The actual was 24. So players adopted this one more than than either of us predicted. And we knew that it was going to have a lot of appearances, but we scaled down our estimates to talk about the adoption rate. We just overestimated. Slow adoption rate of vintage players. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, And I guarantee, I didn't look it up, but I guarantee there's still plenty of cities of brass seeing play in top eight. So it's just a, a matter of ratios here. Let's make a code of that. Um, kind of funny at the uh, at the Waterbury. I pointed out to Paul Mastriano. He 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 and I were both running Mana Confluence and City of Brass. He was running it in his uh, <laughs> in his um, <laughs> uh, Steel City Vault deck that he got second place with, and I was running it in my Burning Tendrils deck. And it, I pointed out to him that the City of Brass has one key advantage over Mana Confluence, which is that you can with the Tendrils at one life, you can stack the Tendrils as long as it has a storm. Stack the City of Brass. And let the tendrils copy resolve first, so you don't die. Nice. So that's <laughs> nice. I didn't think about that. I have to look that one up and see if anyone's done it. So that goes down as a win for you. But in general, our our understanding of the amount of mana confluence that we're gonna hit was was pretty well, accurate. Eighteen. I predicted eighteen and twenty-four. That's really close. Yeah. So and on that scale, it's pretty close. Next up, Dakra Mystic with zeros across the board. No surprise there. The next one though cracks me up. <laughs> <laughs> Prophetic flame speaker, right? You predicted to remind, remind folks what this this is. Uh, this is the red creature for one red red, double strike trample. Whenever it deals damage to a uh, combat damage to a player, exile the top two cards of your library. You may play them this turn. It's one three, so it's the kind of double Ophidian for red. Human. Y- yeah, you predicted two. I predicted none, and there was one appearance. <laughs> <laughs> So People, they're humans. So we, we uh, we're both one away from the result, but I gotta give you this one because I was going with zero and you went with non-zero. So I think you should get credit. <laughs> <laughs> but there was a it was a red white uh, humans aggro disruption kind of deck. It was really kind of a cool deck. And this one's funny too. Eidolon of the Great Level. We revel. Excuse me. This is the red red pyrostatic pillar with legs. We both predicted zero, but there was one appearance, one copy in a sideboard in Columbus. Oh, what? Yeah, which is pretty funny. So it goes down as a miss for us, but generally speaking, no Eidolons of the Great Rebel other than a sideboard copy. Then there's a bunch of cards that got all zeros. Oppressive Rays, Athreos, Dictative Crucifix, Spite of Mogus, Eidolon of Rhetoric, King Makar, and Pull from the Deep. No reason to discuss any of those. Disciple of Deceit, I predicted two to your zero, and there were zero. I know people are still working on this card, though, because they're talking about it on the Mana Drain, but... Remind so, me which, which does again. Disciple of Deceit is the the one where if it untaps, you get to uh, discard a card and search your library for a card of the same mana cost. So it's like the untap transmutability, which, I don't know, might still have its place in the future, but nothing yet. So you get you got that one correct. But the last one we need to talk about here is Dak Faden. How interesting is Dak Faden in Vintage right now? You said 18, I said 10. The result was 38. Oh my god, I was 20 off. That's It's unbelievable <laughs> how much Dak Faden has been adopted well, in the format. Well, we knew it would be big. I mean, 18 is, is Eight, a big... 18's uh, a big projection, but yeah. 38 is like Snapcaster made big. Uh, and that's really surprising to me. Not so much that Dak Faden deserves play. We, we both understood right off the bat that it does, but... 
the simple fact that 38 that's you're right that's huge that's that's staple card level performance that's more appearances you'll note than mana confluence a, f- yeah. a multicolor land from the well, same I pre- set. I predicted the same number of both, right? I said eighteen Dak Fade and eighteen Mana <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> I think. I think. Um. And I think I, it, it speaks ahead. to. It, I think it just speaks to the breadth of Dak's utility because Rich Shea's deck in the in the uh, Vintage Super League shows, and obviously Rich is well known for his approach to Dak with the Goblin Welders and the Notion Thief, et cetera, for value. Yeah. Then Dak's obviously been making lots of appearances in, in Blue Red or Rug Delver decks, that kind of thing, generally in Grixis, of course. But I just think that it just inspired so much value in people. And and obviously, major metagames in the vintage community are well known for having to address workshops. So I think right. a combination of inspiring some new deck design plus... Uh, the, the way it deals with staples in the format just went wild. Can I, so I, I'm trying to remember what our discussion was around Dak Faden, but I vaguely recall asking you how many Trigon Predators had seen play and then made some sort of prediction saying, I think that the floor will be like two-thirds the number of Trigon Predators in the preceding period. Um, and maybe that's how I came up with my 18 my 18 figure. But, um, it, you know, blue-red blue is probably just a stronger color combination right now than, than blue-green, which certainly partially explains it. But, you know, the fact that it steals the artifact immediately and has some of this additional versatility... Um, Certainly makes it pretty big. I, it, it, I think it was not quite that fast to it to to catch on. I mean, it saw some initial early play, but I think it sort of it wasn't like sort of a spike. It was more one of those like slow build up a play if you can visualize the graph. It may be. I mean, we just have a, a lot of time in this in this time period. I don't know if that affects that at all. But um, uh, and I also think know. that Rich's specific performance and the design with his deck probably inspired uh, some additional appearances too because it got some notoriety and he had some success and and word travels faster these days with magic online and it just played so many different kinds of decks i mean trigon predator is probably slightly more limited i mean certainly trigon predator can be played in like delver decks and rug decks and in like uh other gush control decks doomsday stuff like that but deck faden can be played in delver and control slaver and grixis and you name it so um you know I'm not. I'm not su- surprised at all. Actually, I mean, in retrospect, if you if you hadn't have seen these results and you were just saying based on your knowledge of the vintage metagame, how many would you have predicted? We probably would, we probably would have said like around that, thirty to thirty-five, forty. I'm. I must admit that I'm still surprised. I knew it was good. Obviously, our predictions and discussions showed that it had a place, but it's like wildfire. I would never have said that there were more of those than there would be mana confluence. <laughs> With the state, uh, of, with the state of the format six months—not six months ago, uh, three months ago—I would never have guessed this level well, of performance. Well, I, I think one big thing is that Dak Faden is often a one over or two of. True. So that's you know, and mana confluence. I mean, yeah, it's great, but outside of dredge and in five color combo decks, <laughs> that's true. <you> know. <laughs> it is a bit apples to oranges. You're right about that. Well, so. That's just an incredible result. Uh, I think we need to move on to cons of Tarkir, and I would bet. Where's our summary? (laughs) Oh, uh, well, I gave the summary in advance. And uh, again, as I said, I think you're the big winner here. I only won, in the heads-up competition, I only won one of the cards we predicted. And then just just barely. For our Cons of Tarkir review, we should start by talking about the features and mechanics of the set. 
So some new mechanics and some returning mechanics. Let's talk about the returning mechanics because we've probably discussed them in the past. First up is Delve. Delve is the alternate, or let's say, helping mana cost effect where you can remove or exile cards from your graveyard to pay for, usually, the colorless mana uh, costs of a portion of a card's mana cost. So, for example, a card that we're going to review a little more in a bit is Treasure Cruise. A sorcery for seven blue, it has Delve, and it says draw three cards. So what that means is you can exile some or all of the seven colorless mana in the mana cost to lower its cost using cards in your graveyard. This is a returning mechanic from Future Sight Block, I'm sorry, Time Spiral Block, and... It doesn't have much of a place in the existing Delve cards from Invintage today, but it's definitely made its place in Legacy with cards like Tombstalker. So Mm. as an effect that can translate cards in multiple zones into mana, I think Mm -hmm. it's generally very potentially powerful in Vintage. We just haven't had the right card yet. Right, because Vintage is particularly uh, capable of of doing that, of of sort of translating cards from hand to graveyard. Yeah, you you only need to look as far as Oath or Dredge for examples of how you can quickly put cards in your graveyard. Taxi and Probe. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, and all the zero mana ways of doing that in addition. So that's Delve, which we'll talk a little bit more in detail, but I think it dovetails pretty well with Vintage. The other returning mechanic is Morph, which really need not apply in Vintage. Paying three mana, even though it's colorless and non-artifact, sadly, to put a creature into play and then pay more mana later to get some kind of benefit is the sort of thing that simply doesn't apply in Vintage. If they make a creature that has Morph and the ability is free to turn it up and it destroys an artifact or does some other Vintage-relevant thing, then maybe we'll talk, but that doesn't happen yet. As far as new mechanics go, there's Outlast, which is an activated ability, usually for mana, which says mana cost and tap, put a plus one, plus one counter on this creature. Outlast only as a sorcery. So that's pretty much a limited only and possibly standard playable ability. Slowly adding plus one, plus one counters to a creature need not apply in Vintage. Hmm. It would only be playable if the creature would be playable without it, which doesn't happen in this set. The next is Raid, which is a triggered ability basically on playing a creature if you have attacked this turn. It's very similar to Bloodlust in the past, where if you've damaged your opponent with combat damage, you get an additional benefit. This ability could be usable in some vintage decks, but again, the sort of effects they've added to it are not very useful and or they're on generally overcosted creatures. There's no creature in the set, again, like Outlast, that would need to be that is playable without the raid ability in Vintage. That's what that would be the threshold, I think, to begin with. It's also hard to um, reliably uh, trigger this kind of ability because attacking is so sort of inconsistent. Creatures are picked off so quickly um, that if your opponent sort of smells just the whiff that you have anything that's good, your opponents are going to do their best to prevent you from attacking in the first place. Very similar to our recent conversation about the inspired mechanic in Vintage. Difficult to land a creature reliably get it into combat and then move beyond that yeah similar to land a creature than to attack with it sometimes right so raid is is even one step more difficult than inspired is with inspired of course as a cavern of souls but yeah uh true very true but at any rate raid i don't expect to see any raid cards playable in vintage uh, from this set at least 
Similarly, ferocious. Now, ferocious is another keyword that gives you an additional benefit on a creature or spell if you have a, another creature in play that has power four or greater. This is also similarly very difficult to achieve in vintage on a reliable basis. There are, as it stands, very few creatures in vintage that even have four power, and things like Tarmogoyf, uh, several of the workshop robots do, but in order to reliably get a, a ferocious trigger, basically, or a benefit, you'd have to have that creature in play beforehand and have it still in play when your ferocious ability went to resolve. These things are difficult to achieve to begin with, and if you can't uh, play a creature or card in Vintage that needs ferocious in order to be good enough. So, again, if a card with ferocious sees play in Vintage, there's one we'll talk about. It would be because it was good enough without the ferocious ability. But all all the ferocious triggers are different. Different. So it's not just um, it's just it's just essentially an attack trigger. But they're all different. They don't require the same power or whatever. No, they all, the ferocious does key off of the four power. It's only four it's power. It's four okay. power. Well, yes, specifically. Yeah, yep. Got yep. It. There is, however, one new mechanic in this set that is ostensibly a keyworded version of something we already knew about, and that is Prowess. Prowess, the Jeskai keyword, says whenever you cast a non-creature spell, this creature gets plus one, plus one until the end of the turn. And aspiring vintage fans or players <laughs> will recognize this ability as Similarly, the text of Kiln Fiend or Quirion Dryad or a few other vintage playable creatures that get better when you play multiple spells. Yeah, yeah. I mean, they're grow creatures. Like, there are lots of playable. I mean, now you can see why this would be vintage playable. There are a plethora of vintage playable creatures that that are essentially undercosted but grow over time, like Delver and Tarmogoyf and Young Pyromancer and who grows horizontally, not vertically, and Quirion Dryad, who is the sort of prototype for these kinds of things. And, and I suppose I have to point out that someone played an ancient, uh, forgotten ancient, at the Vintage Championship Top 16 last year. <laughs> <laughs> but, but of course, this is a little bit different because this only, ha it, like Kiln Fiend, only lasts until end of turn. It's slightly better than Kiln Fiend because it triggers off of any non-creature spell, which means, unlike nearly every other example you just gave, this will trigger off of Moxin, which is fun, and it's some slight additional benefit. And it also pumps its butt as well. So. That's true. Unlike Kiln Fiend, which is very glass cannon-like, these creatures could possibly outgrow a lightning bolt, for example, which Kiln Fiend can't do. So let's move on to some real cards using these mechanics. And we don't have to go much further than Dig Through Time. Instant, 6 blue blue, Delve. Look at the top 7 cards of your library, put 2 of them into your hand, and the rest on the bottom of your library in any order. We have to talk about Delve. I think we have to tackle Delve head-on with a couple of these examples we're going to talk about, because... There are many different rubrics by which you can examine a card like this. When we talk about new cards in the past, one of the first things we touch on is the, is the casting cost a playable or existing <laughs> casting cost in Vintage? And you can't analyze Delve that way. <laughs> right, because the casting cost is variable. <laughs> That's right. So you have to tackle Delve head-on. You have to talk about how often is this card going to cost blue-blue, and how often is it going to cost one, two, three, or more than well, that. Let's just and tackle ironically, it. and ironically, you're ne you're never going to play the card for its higher casting costs unless you can, which is kind of a cop out answer. But it's like Force of Will. If you can hard cast Force of Will, you do, and your game against LSV in the Vintage Super League this week fe featured multiple hard cast Force of Wills. 
So it's not out of the question to say that someone might pay four or five for this spell at some point in a late game. I think another way of approaching this and evaluating it is we could start, I mean, if, if it's hard to evaluate the casting cost why don't, or the mechanic, why don't we just start at what it does and just see is there any, is that by itself a potentially playable thing or is that an inherently unplayable thing? That's also fair. Let's do that. So look at the so top seven, keep two, and and stack the bottom, the other five, in my opinion, is an incredibly good vintage effect. Yeah. <laughs> Compare, and not to ignore the mana cost, but comparing to Impulse, which is vintage playable and has been played not very much, but basically it's, a double. Yeah, it's like you're getting two Impulses for one. For one card. Yeah. It's so hard to evaluate because, I mean, <laughs> the only card that I know of that looks at like the top seven isn't it Ancestral Knowledge? Yeah. And I've and that card costs five. That's okay. No, not. I'm sorry. I'm not thinking of such. I'm thinking about the card that has the cumulative upkeep, and you look at the top seven, and you exile. Uh, okay, so there are two cards that have very similar titles. Ancestral knowledge. You're right. Is an enchantment that costs two, but it has cumulative upkeep. You look at the top ten. Yeah, that's stack it. Them, but yeah. you don't draw any cards when you cast right. it. It's just it's not your card draw advantage. Step. But it's not card advantage. But it's it creates virtual card advantage over time if you can keep it in play. Right. Um, but the card I was thinking of was ancestral memories. Look at the top seven cards put two of them in your hand and rest in your graveyard so this card is almost exactly ancestral memories except ancestral memories puts the other cards in your graveyard which is legitimately a lot better but it's also a sorcery so this is an instant so if you can delve most or all of the delve cost in this card it becomes way cheaper than ancestral memories and therefore much better right but the, so what kind of deck would want to look at seven put two right most decks <laughs> that can create the blue blue in vintage would want that effect right you would want well, you would want this effect in delver or grixis or oath I would think it's fair to say that... What? Any deck that can produce the blue-blue wants this deck card and vintage? The effect. Oh, the effect, yes. Yeah. yeah. yeah I, effect... I think it's fair to say that there isn't a deck... If this card just cost blue-blue, it would be in basically any deck that could produce blue-blue <laughs> in vintage, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, with a few corner case exceptions. But gush decks, storm decks, control decks, aggro control decks, everyone would want this effect if it was just blue-blue. But it's not so... just blue-blue. So you have to evaluate then what kind of decks can reliably put as many cards in the graveyard as it requires to make this card cost two two to four mana. Okay. So we I think we both are in agreement that this thing is the the effect is vintage playable. Mm-hmm. Now let's see. <laughs> Even though it's it's very hard to compare, there aren't a lot of analogs. Impulse is not vintage playable right now because it costs two mana. Right. Just like strategic planning. But ponder is certainly playable as a one mana impulse. So the question is how much would it have to cost to be worth it to, to look at seven and draw two? I certainly think that two mana would be would be fine. If you can cast this for two mana reliably it would be definitely playable. I think question is i think our analysis should compare this card the next stage then should compare this card to thirst for knowledge right i mean you can look at cards like thirst for knowledge or deep analysis but i think um yeah i think thirst thirst i mean the problem is there's a lot of thirst analogs in a sense thirst for knowledge is restricted and every other three casting cost card like i don't know the garbage one that discards you discard land yeah it's a sorcery is unplayable so the gulf is is tiny in some respect but enormous enormous <laughs> in the sense that you know restricted to not playable is huge but the sort of 
actual differences are are often tiny that make that difference. Right. Thirst has lots of other inherent interactions with the format, namely vis-a-vis artifacts. Artifacts yeah. instead of a land. But, but, there are, but the yeah. thing is, the, the, the artifact interaction with Thirst is means that you have to be playing artifacts for it to be maximized, sure. which what's is that, synergistic card, with the format. What's the card that people were noodling around with for a little bit that... um has flashback that people are playing like uh um it's like three look at the top four put one in your hand flashback and kill a bunch of you're talking about oh you're talking about forbidden alchemy with with that costs two blue look at the top four put one in your hand but has flashback six black yeah and yeah that's saw a bit of play it looks at one more than thirst but you only ever get one i right. think the the and difference between one and two cards gained though is the yeah. reason to compare to thirst and it's the reason that thirst and this card are miles ahead but, of so many others but they're both conditional i mean i mean so this is conditional on frankly getting this down to a reasonable cost <laughs> thirst is just conditional on you having an artifact those are two very different conditions though very ones that you can massage in very different ways that's right i totally agree yeah but i'm just pointing out that um oh yeah yeah so so i guess the question then becomes how reliable can this condition be made and and if it's not sort of what's the cost or opportunity cost of playing this at at a greater mana cost so how bad would you feel if you played this for four yeah i think that the pivot is around three or four because at three mana this is just better than thirst isn't it we've just we've got to evaluate i don't think we can evaluate these delve cards until we we address this question of um how reliably vintage decks can you know how much delve they can reliably get within the first couple turns right i think that's the key question so uh, vintage decks can reliably fetch on turn one that's one card (laughs) granted um you know, if you play with a bunch of cantrips, including Gataxian Probe, you can get, you know, I, I don't know. I You can probably get to the point where 70 or 80% of your opening hands put two cards in the graveyard. On turn one. On turn one. Yeah, I think that's that sounds about right. And that's not counting uh, seldom played in terms of quantity disruption cards like Thoughtseize and Cobble Therapy and those kind of right. things too. So right. you, can, you can construct a deck that's going to get really high percentage of two cards in the graveyard turn one every time. Okay, so and then that that doesn't. I mean, that obviously means this is not a reliable turn one play. The question is. <laughs> well, the blue blue tells you that also. <laughs> yeah, well, sure. Um, but even you know, not like you could get there with Chrome Mox either. Um, right. Right. Um, so, so I think the analysis I, has to start looking though at the next tier or the next level of spell count or card type that goes into the graveyard, because. As we've just described, a whole bunch of cantrips or disruption spells that cost one mana, yeah. it's easy to build that deck. But that's not a winning deck in Vintage. I agree. There, there's no deck you can construct that starts with four preordains, four probes, four thought seizes, right? Yeah. That deck's going to be awful. Four so, mana morphos. Right. <laughs> I mean, just because Vintage has all these cards doesn't mean you're going to get anywhere. So let's see. So we're talking about either a, per, a permanent heavy deck or something that has an step. engine. You definitely want missteps too. Just a second. Though so we're talking about something that either has an engine that's putting a lot of cards in the graveyard, a la Oath or Dredge. Holy smokes! Cards it's, like Careful Study get a heck of a lot better with right. This. Or cards that or decks that have a certain density of spells and maybe weighted towards spells that do what you just said. Mental note: Careful Study. Breakthrough. <laughs> right. Breakthrough. Right. So there's no such thing as a careful study deck in Vintage for a long time, really. I mean, that has been played occasionally, but that just doesn't happen anymore. That kind of getting value out of the graveyard has been... It's been surpassed by more long-term value-like 
what's built into your Delver deck now. Yeah, you've got you've got value engines out of the graveyard. You've yeah. got Snapcaster, you've got Ancient Grudge, but that's you don't have engines to put those cards there. They're just yeah. value cards. And Gush doesn't get you there either, because Gush is a turn three play at the earliest. Right. If you're playing right. and you don't have fast monitor. So already we're talking about this card is not filling the same role that something like preordain or impulse does. Or thirst. Yeah, a thirst. I mean frankly, I, I can't remember how many times I saw Rich Shea at a Star City Games Power Nine tournament just go mox mox land thirst. Right. Exactly. That, that, I mean that that was a very common play. The fact that the the narrow restrictiveness on thirst that you alluded to earlier begins in deck construction and not during play really is the reason why you can expect to just get that kind of draw with thirst. No matter how well you constructed your deck with source reason and stuff that goes to the graveyard, I think that turn one dig through time would be a one in a thousand <laughs> kind of thing, right? Even if you de- built a deck designed to just do that, it's still only going to happen one in a couple of hundred times. So I think that you can't picture this card as a fast play at all. This is a even though it might only cost two mana, you still have to plan for this card to be played on turns three through five. In my opinion, you're not going to build a storm deck where yeah. this yeah. deck is some kind of en- or this card is some kind of engine to to be the linchpin in your in your combo. Yeah, this is this is not a, a combo engine. That right. You're trying to. <laughs> no, this is a sort of a, a sort of um, this is a, cumulative value card. A cumulative value card. It's a card advantage thing. It's you want to get to a point in the mid game like Night's Whisper, except you can't yeah. reliably play it on turn yeah, exactly. one. Night's Whisper is a turn one play. Yeah. Um, there is that card uh, I, that I do like that doesn't see play. That's the Night's Whisper, uh, the one that also um, filters. What's that card called? Uh, 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 read, read the Bones? Yeah, Read the Bones. I like that card. But again, another card that doesn't see play at that, that three mana casting cost. I think that's a good comparison, though, because the difference in mana cost also belies a difference in role in Vintage, right? One of the yeah. reasons why Night's Whisper is seeing some play is because it is so non-conditional. It's so reliably just turn one, get the value out of it, and move on. Whereas Read the Bones doesn't provide the quite the potency or reliability of that, so it shifts roles. As soon as you move later in turns in Vintage, your cards just take have to take different roles. Yeah. <laughs> like Factor Fiction makes- showing up in, in various Blue Angels or Bomberman style decks. I think I think you know we should we should deviate from our our approach to this these set reviews just momentarily and, and actually tackle treasure cruise before we finish our dig dig through time or maybe t- do them in tandem or together I because was, i think i was going to actually recommend that but it seemed too radical for our set review <laughs> methodology we are old, old codgers at this point uh, <laughs> yeah you're totally right um, though because these two cards overlap so much in function that it's ironic that all of our conversation about dig through time might just tell us that treasure cruise is actually the better card. <laughs> but I, I think more importantly, our conversation around treasure cruise may illuminate some issues that are difficult to get at directly on dig through time without doing it first in the context of treasure cruise. Right. So, so um, treasure cruise, you know, uh, is definitely getting a lot of play and interest in the tension. We need to, um, we need to first elucidate what it is. Treasure cruise, oh, seven blue sorry. sorcery with delve that says draw three cards. Yeah, that's it. So you have to, yeah, yeah. So this is an ancestral recall that costs eight, <laughs> <laughs> and it's a sorcery. Right, it's a sorcery. Um, it's not, it's not a target, so it can't be misdirected. Um, but the critical point is that um, 
a lot. So already in Legacy, this card has won a major tournament, starts the games open in New Jersey in a Legacy Delver deck. And I think a lot of people are wondering, is this card playable in Vintage Delver? Um, I'm going to just go ahead and say I think the answer is yes. But I want to say that I think that the kinds of Delver decks this goes in are different than the kinds of Delver decks that, that exist right now. And let me explain explain sort of what I mean. Mm-hmm. So um, first of all, I don't think this card goes in a Gush deck very well. I think what's going to happen is I think this card is going to help branch Delver decks and Vintage into different directions. So you know, last year there were, what, two or three Rug Delver decks that made top eight the finish championship, and they all were Goyth-based. And I sort of, you know, pushed UR Delver, and I had a splash for green with Pyromancer, based on Pyromancer and Delver. And that's become very popular, very popular. Um, but I think that this card can be a draw engine of a Delver deck, but I don't think it's one that's built around Gush. I think it's one that's much more tempo-oriented than the Gush build and i think this i think let's unpack this for a little bit but here's here's the thing if you're playing this you can't put put this into my type of delver deck because and here's the fundamental problem with this the key aspect of my delver deck is is role flexibility right that i can play the aggro deck in, against merfolk and i can play the control deck against grixis or slaver you know that you you have a lot of role flexibility and you situational role flexibility um so i can switch roles within games uh, within matches across matches etc etc my, my single my, my top premise with this card my number one contention is that this card actually forces you into a more rigid role configuration because if you open up a hand with this let's say your hand is like um land land gush Bluster Storm, Spell Pierce, and this card, right? You're going to make decisions. Oh, let's say there's a preordain in there too. You're going to make decisions that build your delve more quickly than you would have without this, right? You're going to preordain more aggressively. Let's say you might be more inclined to just hold up the the, the counter magic. Well, you might decide in order to get the delve more quickly, I need to begin cycling through my library with a hand like that. So instead of holding up, say, the turn one Bluster Storm or Spell Pierce, you might be more inclined to make the preordain. Now, you could say, well, don't fall into that trap, but then you're not maximizing the value of the card. So what I think this card does is, is it forces you into a more aggressive posture in terms of cycling and things like that than you would normally want to be in terms of fluid role configuration. And so I don't think this deck is really well suited for my type of Delver decks. It gushes too slow. You want to be able to play a control role. Um, I ju- you know, you're just not going to get enough, I think, fast enough cards in the graveyard to be able to reliably use it, even as like a two of, you know, a mid or late game. If you get this open your hand, opening hand, it's going to affect every decision you make. So what I'm suggesting is that I think this is vintage playable, but I think it's going to cr- sort of branch Delver and a, a set of Delver decks that use this in a different design direction. I think the Delver decks that will use this will be more tempo oriented and more likely, Kevin, to use Wasteland. So I think that, so so let's, before we sort of delve into sort of the specifics, I think that a Delver deck that uses cards like Wasteland, that doesn't use Gush, that uses this as a draw engine or is a two or three of, and potentially uses cards like Gitaxian Probe, that, which is really good with Pyromancer, right? I mean, it's good to, to see your opponent's hand. Um, I think that's the direction of Delver decks with this. So what I'm sort of suggesting on, on the one hand is that this doesn't just go into existing Delver decks, but more importantly, uh, it sort of calls into question a redesign uh, and a different uh, a different strategic and role approach. I, so with that, I, go ahead. I I completely agree with you. I'd like to point out something pretty fundamental you mentioned there. I believe that there's a pretty direct relationship between the value of tempo plays and yep. the value of delve because yes. we talked about all the time yes. just yeah, great simple del a uh, simple tempo plays like turn one wasteland. If your yes. opponent plays a land and you waste it, that's yes. that's tempo neutral. That play is not tempo neutral if you're building toward delve and they're not. Right. Right. <laughs> so if if five turns later 
the, you know, those two cards in your graveyard, you get to spend yours, quote unquote, as delve, and they don't. You got a lot right. of virtual card advantage or mana advantage out of that. Right. So I think you, I think that's a really good point. Is that tempo is inherently has has a fundamental positive relationship with delve, <laughs> it just period. And the kinds of um, uh, Del- uh, delver decks that currently exist in vintage are are. It's not saying they aren't tempo oriented or capable of of um, generating tempo, but they. I don't think they want to be sort of boxed into that role so strictly in order to maximize this card's advantage. I think they just have to be redesigned from the ground up. I think and that's you, key. I think that's key. You can't, you can't play, really, you cannot play a four Wasteland deck or even a three Wasteland deck, or really even a main deck, two Wasteland deck with four Gush. And Gush, again, being a turn three play, even though it's free, it's not going to really build towards this. So I think if you just go ahead, design a Delver deck, make it super tempo-oriented with, you know, with Gitaxian Probe and Bolts and, and all that stuff. It could be really good with Treasure Cruise, but it's not the decks that exist right now i think that's a very good point and i think that what i was getting at with dig through time is better elucidated by treasure cruise to your point earlier in that yeah. the role that the card plays in that deck is and dig through time is the sort of card that says hey look you you should be digging with this you should be looking that's why it says look at seven cards I mean, yeah. <laughs> you want to be finding specific things, yeah. but in vintage, you need to be finding "quote unquote" specific things yeah. pretty quickly, or you want to be later in the game and just getting a value engine. Right. So, so just just to attack another piece of this, because um, I put a little bit of thought into it, you know, I think three mana for this card is fine, right? If you're if you're um, you're talking you know, about Merchant treasure Skull cruise, for, right? Treasure yeah. yeah, merchant scroll for ancestral is a perfectly viable play. We know. <laughs> yeah. Regrowth yeah. ancestral, perfectly viable play. Um, if you can get just five cards in the graveyard and cast this, that's going to be plenty of value um and in in a tempo-based delver deck and that shouldn't be that difficult to do if you just sort of construct it the way we just outlined mm-hmm. um so I, I i think i think that this the point though is that if you're building uh, a, a deck that you want to preserve the kind of role flexibility and able to play a strong control role i don't think treasure cruise is your cruise is your card because playing a control role often means opening your hand and doing nothing in fact that's the definition of the control role is being in the the low gear is is playing the land and just holding up your counter magic mm-hmm so, and if you're doing that, it means you're going to be a long way off from Treasure Cruise because your opponent might not play anything for a while. You might be doing nothing, but just playing land and maybe a cantrip here or there. So I'm not sure exactly how that's going to um, shade our discussion of Dig Through Time, but I think that what it does is it sort of raises the question of role. And, and I think also, we, you, I think you made a fundamental connection between Tempo and Delve, which is important. I'm, I find myself wondering, so the blue-red slash rug Delver... Uh, lists of today are seem like an obvious starting point for where you, you would want to integrate these cards and the fact that blue red delver with four treasure crews just one legacy open i think points directly to that same effect in vintage but vintage has several other kind of blue based decks that could utilize one or both of these cards yeah. I find myself wondering if the analog shouldn't be to factor fiction. Mm. All the role discussions we've talked about, um, this Treasure Cruise specifically seems like the sort of factor fiction that Blue Red Delver can play. Mm. Because it can't play fact today. Yeah. At least the gush builds can't. Wow. Now, we might be getting into a deeper discussion here, not that you and I are afraid of that, but I'm just wondering if we have several blue-white style decks, Bomberman or Blue White, or, uh, blue Angels kind of builds that can play fact today, and they've been playing yeah. two or three. Yep. I'm just wondering if, well, two things now, do those decks play Treasure Cruise instead? And I don't know the answer to that necessarily. I, I think that they're not 
built currently to abuse delve enough those decks typically don't play wastelands very many at least and they don't have a lot of they have more they tend to be more permanent heavy they don't have as many spells as a rug delver deck does but there's still a case to be made for the fact that you've got a deck with with eight to twelve counter spells in it and fetch lands and a couple of other you know you, you switch a couple cards over to spells that were permanents before and maybe treasure cruise suddenly becomes more reliably better than factor fiction does i i'm not sure yeah. well, well i'm not i know that those blue there's a, some blue white control decks like you mentioned that play factor fiction i think it's very specific reasons for that though i do too and yeah. you can't just slot treasure cruise in and have it be better i don't think it works like that right. in those decks right right but i'm just wondering if there's a way you can shift down the yeah. spectrum so, from those blue white decks toward blue red delver and find a waypoint yeah. that you're still more like blue white so if you can play this treasure cruise for one mana it's going to be awesome two <laughs> mana very very good three mana certainly playable Playable. um four not ideal four mana yeah is the point where there's already an existing card that sees no play right (laughs) Um, i mean you would do it like in a mid or late game you would do it yes um oh and you would manage uh, we should point out too that you would manage an end to any of these cards in a heartbeat too if you if you get to drain someone's force of will and put five toward your treasure cruise it still costs three but you'd be happy to do that Sure. I mean, oh, and I, you, I, and you could delve your drain too. Yeah. I'm so, so oh, that's interesting. You would pay skeptical. effectively two mana for that at, after that. I'm skeptical that a lot of the decks that would play this will use mana drain, but I agree. sure, we'll just grant, grant that. I um, agree. Just because they're going to be so tempo oriented, mana drain is just but, really one of the cool. But you know, maybe I I'm of the opinion that vintage is actually experiencing a, a probably a historic low in good ways or reliable ways to spend mana drain mana these days. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? We've got but, away yeah, from I mean, the X spells and the mind twists and brain geysers of old. Uh, invariably people are draining something that costs five and only spending two or three of that mana. Well, it's got to be good to mana drain this thing. <laughs> That's a very good point. But I guess I'm just wondering if that might yeah. be oh, an additional benefit good. to playing mana drain yeah, like, with these Delve cards. Like the most reliable drain sink now is like Jace. Yeah, exactly. You're only yeah. sinking two or three mana and typically. But this... There just might be an additional synergy between Delve, these Delve spells and mana drain. So, um... I mean, dig, dig Through Time looks to me like the kind of card where you're like looking for an oath and trying to get some card advantage mm-hmm. at the same time. Um, of course, you know, the but, problem is that you're going to be able to delve best post-oath, so not <laughs> right. pre-oath. Uh, I, I, just fundamentally, I wonder if, would you prefer to draw three cards or would you prefer, to, assuming you have the option of doing either one and that it costs the same amount of mana right now, mm-hmm. would you prefer to draw three cards or would you prefer to look at the top seven, put five on the bottom and draw two? What would you prefer? I would prefer to look at the seven and get the two because... I would say in the in typical vintage decks these days, if you just draw any three cards, one of them's a mana source, right? Yep. And by the time you're delving through one of these cards, my instincts tell me that the mana sources are going to be of limited value. I think I think it really depends on the deck for sure. I mean, I asked you an abstract question out of context, but I, I find myself being unable to answer that question out of context. Like in a Delver deck, I actually think I would rather just have the three cards than the than look at the seven and, and take two because the deck is so homogenous and uniform. That's a very good point. It it really is. But I would point out what happened when you misdirected LSV's ancestral. You drew six cards, but those six cards were you, you late, had to go there. late in the game. You they had were to go they there. were land land spell pierce uh force 
Trigon strip mine. Strip mine. So three and, lands and a d- effectively dead spell pierce. I had I had what like eighteen cards left in my library, and I had only three lands in my deck. Two fetch lands, or <laughs> I had fetched out every dual land and basic land in my deck. Yeah, I'm just <laughs> I'm just the, pointing I, out how I, good would each of those ancestrals have been if they were look at seven take two. No, no, you would have won that game because you, they were so different there. All right, in that particular circumstance. And I think that circumstance is the commonplace, though. Sure, in that's in that circumstance, I think look at seven draw two would have been better. But I think in general in Delver decks, by a slight margin at least, I would prefer just to draw three than look at seven and draw two. Um, but that said, and that's partially because of the the incremental card advantage you draw and the low mana count. So you know, it's not really sure. designed like that. But I think in other decks. Anything like featuring Key Vault, for example, yeah, it's going to yeah. look at seven and draw take two of exactly. them. Exactly, I agree with that. Yeah. yeah. So, so I guess the difference really is: does your deck have haymakers, right? <laughs> and that's over simple, but your the, the the Delver deck you're talking about that you're preaching and you you've played and, and honed to a point really lacks haymakers. But if your deck has a Tinker in it, if it has Key Vault, if it has Yogmoth's Wills, if it has Jaces, if it has game-ending plays, then I believe you almost certainly want to look at seven and take two. Because the looking at four more cards is worth not having that land in your hand. Um, I, I find it highly ironic from a set design standpoint that they put these two cards that are so similar in function in the same set. They both cost eight mana. I mean, the similarity between these two cards is really strangely... I mean, I, I, I would have predicted these two cards were in different sets in this block at least. And I really think they should have put Treasure Cruise later in the block. Because that's the thing is, Dig Through Time was almost certainly not going to get the play because of Treasure Cruise. <laughs> if Treasure Cruise wasn't here, we'd be talking about, all, seriously about Dig. Yeah. I don't know. From a vintage standpoint, I think we've elucidated the the... the key differences between the two and there are uh, in your estimation legitimate reasons to play one over the other oh we, we should also point out the dig through time is an instant that's no small thing that's no small thing it's that true. is no small thing it's true um and, and i think that actually feeds the point that you know there are decks that where this i, I think there are probably decks where dig through time is better and decks where treasure cruise is better and i think tempo delvers treasure cruise is better and maybe some kind of grixis or you know slash bomber whatever kind of deck probably dig through time is better i also find myself wondering about something like land still land still is set up to abuse the card standstill specifically because it's two mana for three cards for other reasons as well of course but i just find myself wondering if you could build a variant of land still that used one or both of these not both of them but used one or the other of these in a similar role mm-hmm. but where you don't have to be so aggressive about playing out the standstill you know what I mean? If standstill was an instant, obviously it would be played in more decks. But it, but functionally, if you didn't have to tap the two mana and turn one or two for standstill, it would dramatically change how that deck deals with certain situations. I just, I think there's a lot of possibilities for these cards. These are fundamental oh, yeah. role-playing cards. Look at when Impulse and Brainstorm were printed in the history of Magic, and Brainstorm's still so good that it had to be restricted. I think it was a design mistake. It's, it's power. But look at Impulse. Impulse has never been restricted or banned, but it's still a a a yardstick by which we should we can measure effects like this. Yeah. It's well, been outclassed throughout the years, but it's still relevant from a conversational standpoint. I think these cards are like that. I think they're gonna be we're gonna be we're gonna be talking about treasure well, crews for years to come, I think. But your 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 comparison to um 
the fact that you even would mention standstill in this co- in this conversation makes makes me think of the point that we really have an abundance of kind of blue draw engine type cards. And so it's like you know you we talked about we talked about factor fiction, we talked about thirst for knowledge, we talked about gush, uh-huh. we talked about standstill. I mean we could we could talk about cards like thoughtcast and so on and so forth. I mean how does how, this that's a crowded landscape? How do these things fit in? You know it's like <laughs> I mean I, I I certainly see the the place for treasure cruise in a tempo delver deck. Would you play Dig Through Time over Factor Fiction or Jace? You know, I mean, it's just it's it's hard for me to imagine. I mean, Vintage places such a, pr- a, pr- a premium on consistency and reliability. Um, mm-hmm. You know, they're but also be, power. There's a balance, but I, I think in the end, power is is is. I, I really believe that in the end, consistency and reliability tend to trump power in the long run. Mm-hmm. That's the reason the deck like Delver can exist in Vintage. Right. Exactly. Um, so, um, yeah, it could be that in some abstract sense, Dig Through Time is better, but it's just a, it's a crowded field for it. Let's <laughs> let's get down to business and talk about specific decks and what you might cut to play these cards. You've already okay. touched on Delver, and you've yeah, already it, specifically addressed how you that, think these cards are not. But that's not a makeover. Gush. That's a rebuild. No, that's I, not I know, a, but yeah, but. Okay. We, I mean, we've got to start somewhere, right? Sure, sure, sure. <laughs> we've already talked about uh, taking a Delver deck, removing the Gushes, making it more tempo-oriented, putting the Wastelands in, and playing Treasure Cruise, right? Yeah. That, that seems like a reasonable deck to start with, and it's going to look a heck of a lot like the deck that just won the Legacy Open. Right. Plus or minus a few cards that you can't play in Vintage. We've also talked about a blue-white type aggro control shell similar to Bomberman or Blue Angels that eschews the factor fiction in place of one or the other of these. I think that's a reasonable starting point to test. And you probably do need to push more into a spell-based or tempo-based type build to make sure the delve is reliable. Kevin, Kevin, hold on. You know where... You know why this might be awesome? This might be this this dig through time, not treasure cruise. Might be really good in Doomsday uh, because Doomsday generates. Doomsday has thoughtsies, lots of search, lots of cantripid. It and, could and you can't afford to delve one one big time. Oh. Yeah, but, but, and then win approximately after that because one of the challenges with Delve is that it gets the second treasure cruise you draw is significantly worse because you've cast the first. Right, right. Whereas the Doomsday second... rarely has that kind of challenge. Right. I, I mean, th- that's a good point. Is that dig through time and these two cards are going to make it harder to play the next one. So they're pr- they're probably not four ofs. They were um, in Legacy though. Yeah. Interestingly. It, interesting. Interestingly, but it's it's also important to just you know we should just mention that these cards impact Yogmoth's will. Negatively. Very negatively, yes. I think that's a fair point. Doomsday is the sort of deck that has the ability to generate the, the delve, oh. and it also tactically wants to look at 7 and keep 2. But it's something you can do on someone's end step. Yeah. So it's like Factor Fiction, but it's better, because you get to look through 7 and take 2 and, and bin the, the rest. So it generates... I, yeah, it seems like this could be really good, a Doomsday deck that has maybe a little bit more celerity, more of the you know, maybe a little bit more duress type effect. Maybe one more ritual. Yeah, something like that. Because ritual plays quite well with Delve. Definitely. I'm also thinking that it's it's very worth noting. Factor Fiction is quite good at being consistently worth three cards, but because of the interactive nature of it, it has the inherent problem of just drawing three cards, basically, and that you're probably going to get one or two cards you want, and the one thing that your opponent 
could deal with you having like a land or something something inconsequential but dig through time is so synergistic with doomsday especially because you have so many narrow role-playing effects in the control category for doomsday in addition to the win conditions look at your top seven grab doomsday and gush untap and win yeah or Uh, so or put together whatever two or three card grouping is what you need to go off next turn because it's not just fine doomsday it's also either the gush or the fluster storm you're missing or the extra duress i'm not saying i would definitely play this in doomsday but i'm saying that seems like it could be a place Uh so i'm curious so just let's be clear the threshold that we believe is you think delve five right that's what you said i think you need to reliably for treasure cruise yeah probably for both of them i think you need to have five cards to delve for them to be even reliably good yeah i think doomsday can do that um so if you're and and that puts it but if if you have four that puts it in the same cash and cost as fact and gifts right yeah Huh. And at four mana, obviously gifts is better than dig through time, <laughs> yeah. but gifts is restricted, so that doesn't doesn't preclude this card from being playable. And in a grindy deck at four mana, obviously Jace is better than dig through time. I mean, a deck that's playing the control role and going the long game. What's really interesting is once you get to four mana, do you want dig through time? I'm sorry, do you want treasure cruise or do you want Jace? That's a tricky one. Yeah. Um, you probably still want Jace. Because I, I don't know, Chase provides such a long-term benefit, and looking at three cards and only keeping one of them in many vintage contexts is just as good as having three for that next turn, mm-hmm. just for that turn window. It's frequently the same, but man, if you're playing for going turns after that, Treasure Cruise, yeah, so valuable. Yeah, um, yeah also, I mean, Jace, Jace is one of those cards. It's it's weird. It's <laughs> kind of falling a little bit off the map. I'm also just thinking too about other matchups. So we've talked about the game plan that these various blue decks have and how they want, you know, they're rewarded for playing tempo with Delve. But I'm also thinking yeah. in certain matchups, like playing against workshops, playing against Terra Nova. That's yeah. a situation I, where some decks really genuinely, if you get into the late game, you're winning, right? I, Getting into the late game is a success yeah. story against Terra Nova. Yeah, th- yeah, that's a good point. I mean, there's also the, the other side of that is that if you're ge- if you're generating a lot of cards in your graveyard, you're probably going through a lot of cards, so you're probably winning too. I mean, or, or uh, even if could, it's parity. Yeah, I I think that um, in, a, yeah. in a matchup in a, in a a grindy matchup like say Rug versus Bug, Treasure Cruise is insanely valuable in a, in a matchup like that. If people in the if people can play factor fiction and vintage, then this is vintage playable. Let's just let's just start there. <laughs> <laughs> so and, and I'm not talking about treasure cruise. I'm talking about dig through whatever. Okay. I already said I thought treasure cruise is playable. Yeah. Um, I I actually think this card could see play in those factor fiction decks instead of factor fiction as well. Mm-hmm. And I mean they have so many of these cards that they they bend quickly. Like I mean, they run like misstep and plow and. And uh, um, spell pierce. It's not spell pierce. Spell snare. Yeah. They run a lot. Like some some of those decks have like four spell snares. Mm-hmm. Um, no, I I definitely think that those blue white decks. I mean, heck, some of them are running. Uh, what is that? Magus of the future. Of, yeah. Yeah. I mean, no, this card seems like it could definitely be playable there in, in those decks yeah. instead of fact fiction. And, it, and it, of course, it, it, treasure cruise would not be playable there because it's not an instant. This would be. I think that's fair. I think that factor fiction in Bomberman plays a little bit of a different role, so this wouldn't work quite as well as fact does there. But in a deck that's just more know. like a blue-white Stoneforge deck I'm not, or I'm Blue not Angels, I think it could work very similar to Factor Fiction, actually. Well, it's just you get such you get such an incremental well, advantage with Fact of 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 getting the three cards, but also getting your Lotus or your Spell Bomb or something too. Yeah, but if you find if you find Lotus, I mean, if you find Lotus or Salvagers, you know, I mean, yeah. like, I mean, 
you know, and there, uh, there's extra, it's just virtual card advantage you get with fact that you wouldn't get with dig. That's all. I think seeing seven cards is huge in the deck. And we talked about cards with decks with haymakers. So true. Very true. I, yeah. People will look at it. I think almost certainly all these blue white variants, if they're blue and the blue angels or the Bomberman spectrum, I think everyone playing those decks has got to look at these and some people will choose to play them. I think you're right though. I think those blue white decks can, I think they could immediately probably put in one or one of the other of these. And I think if they push more down to tempo spectrum, they could really abuse these cards. I think it's worth noting that Delve doesn't play very well with Deathrite Shaman. Oh, that's a huge. That's a huge. For or yeah. against, now that I think about De- it, because Deathrite. because this might these don't play well in Deathrite decks because you're removing your turn one fetch land for extra mana on turn two, so you've cut your slowed your Delve down. And on the flip side, it makes your opponent's Deathrites even more scary. Because if they play turn one Deathrite and you're trying to delve, they're obviously going to... I mean, even today, you still remove your opponent's fetch lands just on general principle. But that makes that play even more a priority. So your opponent might prioritize activating their Deathrite faster and and push off your treasure crews for even longer. That's really, really interesting. That if these cards showed up in multiple decks, they might actually increase the appearance rate of Deathrite Shaman. Yeah, um, and Deathrite Shaman's just one of those creatures waiting in the wings to swoop back in. <laughs> he's, ready, yeah. he's ready to get back in there. If, if these things see enough play, Deathrite Shaman can become a real menace again. Um, yeah, I mean, I think that's a really important point. Boy, fascinating. Isn't it, you know, the, the your match against LSV reinforced something that I have said a number of times on the show before, but and you said it, it, it highlights the... The, the dispels some of the myths of the format by highlighting a bunch of skill testing and deck construction and and play choices and just all kinds of things. But one of, the, one of my favorite things to point out about Vintage is, is the closest thing to what I refer to as pure magic, meaning you have all of the choices and it's your choices that determine the metagame and how you perform. And it's not just, well, this is the best card in this card pool. There is still that element. Yeah. But in, in a format like Standard, you just ignore 80 or 90% of the card pool and say, well, you know, these dozen cards are the best cards in this format. And there's still skill, don't get me wrong. But in a, in a format like Vintage, there's no best draw engine. <laughs> Ancestral Recall notwithstanding, you and I have through this conversation, listed a dozen or more ways to draw cards in in blue, which is the color that does that. Yeah. And there's no best one. There's no thing that says, well, you yeah. obviously do this because it's better than this. Gush is not just better than Treasure Cruise. <laughs> and Standstill is they're, not better than Factor. They're so, I think what you're saying is they're, they're highly contextual. Exactly. And and the, you're, the person who chooses and executes their plan and knows about everyone else's plan best is rewarded. Yeah. It's so, it's so fascinating to juxtapose these cards. I mean, on the one hand, you've got the instant. On the other hand, you have the sorcery. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, it's like in some decks, throwing three cards is probably better than impulsing through two through seven and uh you know the the one caster is better with mana drain even mm. though it probably is less likely to use mana drain. it's just like <laughs> i know isn't like, that awesome it's just like this is just really crazy um to sort of compare and, and contrast it, and it's ironic too that we have these tempo decks and yeah. tempo is usually it, associated with speed but we're talking right. about putting eight mana cards into these right. tempo decks because we really want to plan for the long game and get rewarded for spending our resources and and maintaining parity or better. And there were all this array of, of sort of prevalent tactics that interact kind of problematically, like we talked about Deathrite Shaman, but let's not forget that there's a lot of Singleton to Hell spell bombs floating around um, mm. that can try and impede this before it can even hit the stack. So even though Treasure Cruise might be a better card for Blue-Red Delver against Grixis, for example, you know, the Delver deck might be able to abuse Treasure Cruise, 
the Grixis deck, yeah. as you said, has trumps. Yeah. If they play that turn one spell bomb, then they've gotten virtual card advantage over that treasure cruise. Yeah. I mean, once you put it on the stack, it'll be too late. But I assume that's the case, right? Uh, no. Oh, yeah. Sure. Once you. Yeah. But, but if you can, if you can hit like the first four cards out of the graveyard and, and draw a card, yeah, you put that's them back. Really, a bunch. that's going to put treasure cruise back a lot. Mm-hmm. Set it back a lot. Yeah. Yeah, you're right. These interactions are all incredibly fascinating. It's just going to make vintage more skill intensive. I mean, not that it already isn't, but it just, it just, <laughs> just more, one more, more thing. decision. Do yeah. I break the hill spell bomb now, or do I wait one turn? <laughs> I, I just I just now thought of Consecrated Sphinx. You mentioned Mages of the Future. Oh, but yeah. Consecrated Sphinx is starting to see play in Vintage, which I find awesome and hilarious. And Treasure Cruise, with no delve at all, only costs eight compared to six. <laughs> I mean, Notion Thief, Notion Thief is completely broken out as well. Yeah, that too. That card is, is everywhere. Mostly tied to Dak Faden. Yeah, he's a, a lock with Dak Faden. But yeah. He's just really good, period. Wow. And of course, Notion Thief doesn't interact with Dig Through Time, but it does interact with Treasure Cruise, which, I mean, oh my God, your opponent's right. Notion Thief, you still get your two cards from Dig Through Time. Because it doesn't draw. Right. But if you cast Treasure Cruise on turn three and they respond with Notion Thief, God. yeah, it's just like Ancestral in that <laughs> way. Dig, talking about small differences that make a big difference, right? Yeah. There's another. Yeah. Dig Through Time is Notion Thief immune. That's actually non-trivial at I, all. Yeah, you're right. With, yes. the, with the upswing in Notion Thief and with the exposure that Rich's deck, for example, is getting through the Vintage Super League, <laughs> I uh, yeah, that's not that's not insignificant. Fascinating, Steve. We we got to move on though. This yeah, we got to stop. We so uh, already talked for so, so long on these cards. I mean, well worth it. These are probably I, I can't imagine it gets much better. Um, <laughs> but uh, it's going to be very difficult to predict. Um, you want to take one and I'll take the other and we'll just set our numbers out there. I'm going to write down a number. You're going to write uh, down a number? Okay, I'll yeah. write down a number. F- uh, I I'm going to I'm going to go first for Treasure Cruise. Oh. <laughs> you want to go the other way around? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. All right. All right. I'll go first for Dig Through Time. You get to go first for Treasure Cruise. Give me a second. Nate. I'm I'm going to type my number here in our notes before you say it. <laughs> Hide it. Oh, sorry. Don't don't look at the notes yet. Okay, it's hidden. <laughs> All right. Okay, you reveal first, and I'll, mine's mine's written in stone, so you, I'm not going to change it. Okay, I'm going to say Treasure Cruise. Must say. <laughs> This is one of those cards that could be all over the place or whatever. Um, it's no Dak Faden. <laughs> it, it's going to be it, our next set reviews in January, right? Yeah. January. I'm going to say, yeah, it, it can't be Dak Faden. No, it's it's not going to be that popular. I've got a number down. I just want to just think for another second just to consider any factors that may want me to edge it in a different direction. But I've got it's like a, a gut level number down here. Okay. Um, okay. I, I'm comfortable with this number, and we can discuss it, and I can always amend it. Okay. I'm gonna. You, do you want to go first? Or you want me to? No, you're going first for Treasure Cruise. Okay, Treasure Cruise. I predict that there will be seven top eight appearances. All right, seven for Treasure Cruise. Now, do you want me to do tre- my response on Treasure Cruise? Yes. Yeah, you have to do your response. Okay. Yeah. Uh, we can always change our numbers before. I know. As we talk more about it, I'm trying to picture. Is this gonna? I mean, it won't be the deck well, fade level. We're not going to be 38 yes. appearances, but no, I'm just no, wondering no. if if we're underestimating how I'll, excited vintage players are going to be about draw three cards. And I will unpack my explanation. Okay, that's fine. But wait, wait yeah. till I've said mine. Yep. Yep. A um, little bit of Delver. Some people are going to play it in Delver. Some people are going to play it in Blue White. Some people are going to put some in Grixis. I'm guessing. 
It might even be in a sideboard for a Burning Witch deck. Burning Witch target? Yeah. That's 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 not very good, but still. Yeah, I imagine playing that over like like a Windfall or Time Twister in the board. But wouldn't you, if you're you're pinched on mana, wouldn't you play blue-red three, draw three cards? This isn't playable in Dredge, is it? Well... Technically, yeah, but Dredge already doesn't play Ancestral Recall. I mean, some decks have, obviously. There used to be Dredge decks that played with Breakthrough. I know, but they don't anymore. Okay. Yes, this is playable in Dredge, but they're already eschewing Ancestral, and okay. this is right. much worse than Ancestral. Yep. Um, boy. Yeah, it's really hard to predict this. This is super, super hard to predict. I'm going to take the over. I'm going to say 10. Wow. Yeah. So I think there's nothing wrong with that. What I was thinking is that we're going to see probably, I'd say, two-thirds of these deck lists will have the Delver variants. But then I think it'll appear a smattering of other things. Mm-hmm. I, I just think most of the Delver decks that are going to be successful in the near future are going to be non-Treasure Cruise decks. Mm-hmm. Um, just because, again, the role flexibility, I think it's the critical problem. Um, but, you know, people love playing tempo decks and do very well. So I could be entirely wrong. It could be that... Um, like we see a lot of success with um, with tempo Delver decks using Treasure Cruise. Um, the reason I, I felt comfortable taking the over is because I also think that people are just going to toss one or two of these into existing decks with little or no adjustment. Okay. I just think this, you're going to see Treasure Cruises splashed into things. Well, I don't. I don't feel compelled to take take the over on that. Yeah. I think. I think it probably because I'm being overconfident about my last set prediction. <laughs> Hey, you've earned it. (laughs) All right. The number I wrote down for Dig Through Time was four. I think it's going to be less popular than Treasure Cruise, but still played because of the various situational advantages that we that we discussed. And I'm comfortable saying that it could be that Dig Through Time is actually the superior card in the long term for other reasons. Yes. I believe that Treasure Cruise will invigorate people more, yeah. especially because of the Legacy Open. I feel like we're on a long enough time frame that Dig Through Time superiority could potential superiority could manifest more quickly. Okay. Um, also, so the, I, ma- the Magic Online metagame influences that too. Now that you mentioned, I'm going to look and see how many um, Factor Fictions have seen play in the last month, and then use that to make my decision. Without having researched it just yet by myself, I'm going to say not very many. Let's see. Last month was September. Two copies, or three in August, and one, two, three, four in July. So I'm gonna say, take a look at this deck real quick. Interesting. I think that I think it's gonna probably be comparable to that. So over a three month period, there were eight factor fictions. Oh boy. You know, I think your number is probably spot on. I think it's going to be four. Okay. Um, I should take I should take a different number though. Um, I mean, in the in the spirit of our friendly competition, you should take over or under at least. Yeah. The over or the under. Hmm. I think you should take the over and play Doomsday so at Vintage Champs. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, you know what? I'm gonna take. I'm gonna take the over. Okay. You took the over on on me, so I'm gonna take the over. That's not why I'm taking the over. I, know. Because I think it's probably. Yeah, I think I think you're probably spot on. I think the number is four. If I was bet, if, if I was if I was Vegas, and I was creating the line here. Yeah. Someone someone should take our predictions and make them betting lines. <laughs> I, that would be cool. Uh, I I think that would be where I'd set the line is four. So I'm maybe maybe the line the technical line is like four point one. So I'll, I'll set it at five. All right. Fair so, enough. All right, we got to move on. Yeah. Unfortunately, we're mo- what we're moving on to is another pair of cards that inexorably <laughs> have to be evaluated together. <laughs> okay, so we're talking about the prowess creatures, and there's two that are so similar, and yet one has advantages over the other, of course. 
we're talking about Jeskai Elder, which is one blue creature human monk prowess. Whenever Jeskai Elder deals combat damage to a player, you may draw a card if you do discard a card. One, two. As compared to Monastery Swift Spear for red creature human monk also, ironically, with haste and prowess. One, two. So a one mana with a haste, a two mana with looting. They're both one, two prowess creatures. And it should be pointed out, just for the sake of thoroughness, that the legacy blue-red Delver deck that had four treasure cruises in it that won the event also had four Monastery Swift Spear. (laughs) (laughs) In addition to Delvers and Pyromancers. So, Steve, you obviously have a long and storied history with Grow Creatures. We've talked at length about growing vertically versus horizontally. The most recent good example was Young Pyromancer, which somewhat revolutionized the grow creatures by growing horizontally. These prowess creatures clearly grow vertically, a la Quarian Dryad. Uh, and they do so only temporarily, a la Kiln Fiend, but they're a little more flexible than Kiln Fiend, and they have better bodies to start with. I mean, Monastery Swift Spear, in my opinion, is a straight upgrade from Kiln Fiend. One mana and haste, I mean, that's a pretty good upgrade. That's like almost turn one kill kind of upgrade. <laughs> Obviously, that's pretty unlikely. And also, the Jeskai Elder, as compared to Kiln Fiend, has a whole lot more... Uh, uh, control role or role reversal kind of benefit given the fact that it has that looting ability so even if you can't storm someone out with just sky elder you still get some some virtual card advantage by looting so there, there's just tons to unpack here god just tons to unpack oh also the fact that just sky elder is blue is is somewhat revolutionary yes this is the first blue grow creature we've had they've all been either green or red no that's not true delver's technically a grow creature oh well it doesn't actually grow though <laughs> It goes from one one to three two. It grows one time by two yeah. power. <laughs> it's a very important growth. You're right. It's not irrelevant, but I won't. I don't count that as a grow creature. <sighs> but you're you're welcome to. The simple fact is though is that turn turn one just guy elder could just be turn two kill in the right kind of configuration with gush bond. There's got to be we got to start somewhere, right? These mana costs are clearly playable at one or two mana, red and blue respectively. They're clearly playable. The bodies, although they're small, are still clearly playable in the sense that all the historic grow creatures have started small at or about these kind of statistics, 1-1 or Tarmogoyf, 1-2, that kind of thing. And the ability of prowess, so to speak, is also, in my opinion, clearly playable, although it's not a direct analog to Query and Dryad or Kiln Fiend, which gets plus three plus zero. But the growth aspect, I think, is technically clearly playable. But these guys, so the Monastery Swift Spear, which is much cheaper and faster, doesn't yeah. go as efficiently as Kiln Fiend. I, I, I really like, I have to say, I really like Delver's actual ability to peak mm-hmm. because with the fetch land, I mean, I can't tell you how many times I've revealed a lightning bolt and then shuffled it away, mm-hmm. you know, to draw Force of Will uh, or Gush. Um, you know, so, I mean, yeah, th- this um, this card's ability to, to cycle is pretty nice. The turn, like, fetch lands and the, and the spells, mm-hmm. but two mana for a 1-2 that gets... I mean, this is basically like a 2-3 for 2 on the average turn. I suppose with, like, preordained Gush, you get slightly bigger. I, I don't... I guess what I'm getting is I, I can't see playing this in, like, a Delver-type deck. Or Fair Delver. enough. And it's hard to imagine... It, because it seems like it fills more closely to the Tarm 
Armagoy role, which you are on the record for eschewing. Yeah, I, yeah, yeah. Well, I think we had an extensive discussion of Pyromancer versus Tarmogoyf at some point. But I also think it's worth pointing out that modern Delver decks, although they have many elements of the Grow decks, they lack the fast bond. They they lack the combo kill. Well, yeah, they don't have fast bond because they don't have Yogmas will. Right. But, so, but these two creatures could, yeah. as you've already said about delve they could push right. the grow slash rug slash delver archetype yeah. back toward that back, back to, so i guess what you're saying is like something like my grow deck from last year yeah it was like three pyromancer you could play three of these instead yeah but that's that actually makes a lot of sense i mean i do think the pyromancer part of the value of pyromancer is being able to create that huge wall but um oh, definitely yeah we've yeah, already but, we've already elaborated on the value of horizontal versus vertical but this guy is but this guy's not bad i mean he, he can become a two three blocker at, at basically a win either either one can <laughs> yeah sorry either one and we're dealing with these together yeah um i boy so my i'll just start with my initial thought is that the, the blue one is better even though the casting costs i mean just because haste I mean, how, how valuable is that really i mean we've got kiln fiend already which grows so much faster than this i don't see that being more valuable than the ability to filter and being blue do you are you are you do you have a different take on that I just want to point out, and I know it's apples to oranges, but the winning legacy deck used the Monastery Swift Spear over the Jeskai Elder. Mm. Why do you well, think I, that is? Well, because it's tempo-oriented, and the, this thing is faster. Okay. Yeah, I mean, it's a one, ca- a one ca- I mean, legacy has a premium on one-casting cost spells. Yeah. So I just I find myself wondering then, given all our conversation we just had about treasure crews and about pushing, diverging the current flock of Delver decks into rug that's more horizontal and possibly blue red that's more tempo oriented. Maybe the Swift Spear goes in that blue red, more tempo oriented Treasure Cruise playing version in vintage. <laughs> and to put it another on another axis, would you do you think that your old school Quirian Dryad deck from years past gets significantly better if Quirian Dryad is a blue creature with extra upside like this looting provides? I'd still rather have the the, the, the Dryad. If you took my 2007 Vintage Championship deck, yeah. I would not replace it with this card. Because of the permanence of the tokens. Of course. Yeah. Okay. That's fair. I mean, the Dryad is like a 3-3, you know, 5-5, and then he 7-7 seven, seven wins. <laughs> But on the flip side, let's not let's not skip over the fact that prowess triggers off of all non-creature spells. So your dryad didn't grow from Moxin or Black Lotus or other dryads or any of the other green spells in the deck. So it's not irrelevant that these prowess creatures are going to get more growth triggers than a Quirion Dryad or a Kiln Fiend ever does. Yeah. Hmm. Okay, I mean, would you play the? Where would you play these cards, Kevin? Vintage. I think that my opinion of them is that they are theoretically playable, but I don't like any of them over the current crop of creatures in Delver or similar decks. Yeah, the crop of creatures is just way too good. I just don't see it. Young Pyromancer I, really is the the linchpin. Young Pyromancer is the nail in this grow style coffin. I think. Yeah. There's a reason we play Young Pyromancer today over Query and Dryad. Grand Dryad is the same mana cost. See, and, it's even the same colors that are in the deck. 
Yeah, I mean, Queer and Dryad was was trumped by Tarmogoyf for a number of reasons. I mean, one is that Queer and uh, Tarmogoyf is better against Workshop, but more most importantly, Jace just makes Queer and Dryad way too weak. Yeah. Um, and the presence of Pyro, uh, Pyromancer's capacity to deal with Planeswalkers, which is vastly superior. Um, not to mention, again, to play both roles simultaneously. I these cards just can't. I, <laughs> they just don't do that to the same extent. And they're not even if they can, they're not legitimate win condition in Vintage because Pyromancer you can you can you know sit there generate one or two tokens and then with a Yawgmoth will he becomes lethal. Yeah. <laughs> I, mean, I would argue, however, that some of the examples you just gave also are in favor of Monastery Swift Spear. The haste on Monastery Swift Spear does address Chase reasonably. Yeah, that's a good point. That's a good point. And your Yawgmoth's will example also holds with Monastery Swift Spear. I would challenge you that you could probably win from no board and Yawgmoth's will about as reliably as you could from having a Dryad in play plus Yawgmoth's okay. will. There you go. This on turn one, and you play a um, and you play a Gataxian probe. You've got <laughs> yeah, yeah, you've and you got bash a, him for two. But then on the next turn, you maybe only do get to bash them for one because you're holding up a fluster storm plus force of will. But then a turn after that, you maybe get to wasteland them, play a mox and pump this. Uh, I don't know. You might be able to. You might be if you forced a spell on their turn, you didn't get a value out of the prowess so much, but by turn three, maybe you're casting Treasure Cruise and playing a Mox and hitting for three again. What did they play the Swift Spear? They played the Swift Spear with Pyromancer, but they played it over Delver. Is that what they played it over? No, the creature base was four Delvers, four Swift Spear, four Pyromancer. Fascinating. That was, that was those 12 creatures. It's the Grow team. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I am still on the record as saying I think that the current... The current patterns of creatures in Rug Delver decks and similar are better than these prowess creatures, but I still believe that you can have somewhat of a referred a return to form to grow a tog style, and you could still be effective because sure. the yeah. Swift Spear's haste yeah. specifically addresses some of the weaknesses that you mentioned in Dryad. It still has something of a weakness to Jace. I'll give you that, but yeah. but it's mitigated. It's better. It's certainly better. Yeah. It's mitigated a bit. It's also in a better color for this kind of aggro combo deck of sorts than Dryad is today. I mean, I still think I like playing Pyromancer in addition to this. I like playing Lightning Bolts in addition to this, that kind of thing. I legitimately think that the Jeskai Elder doesn't have a place. I legitimately think that almost any deck you could com- you could come up with that wanted that Elder would want the, the Swift Spear instead. The color restriction, while I think having a blue creature is is quite nice, you know, if Quirion Dryad had been blue, <laughs> it would have been an incredible card, obviously. But I think that, again, side by side, and I'm going to point out again how ironic it is that we're comparing two cards against one, if Monastery Swift Spear hadn't been in this set, I think I might be more excited about the Jeskai Elder. But the haste and the one mana makes a huge difference. Just a huge difference in my evaluation of the two. I just don't think if if, if Vintage Champs were tomorrow, I would much rather be I'd much rather be showing up with Pyromancers, young Pyromancers, and maybe Delvers and maybe Snapcasters than I would any amount of Monastery yeah, Swift Spears, I, I think. I really want to like these cards. I really do. Uh-huh. I just don't see. I mean, we have a crowded landscape for grow creatures right now, and I, I just don't see it. It's also worth pointing out too how poorly this vertical prowess mechanic pairs up with workshops. Oh God. There's a re- yeah. again. There's another reason why Delver, it, with its limited growth, but 
it's but it's reliable three power and and young pyromancer obviously there's a reason why we use those now i mean yeah pyromancer and tarmogoyf are like the best and, and delver are the best anti-workshop yeah. of the creatures they just do the best that delver doesn't even need mana to, to grow tarmogoyf just needs stuff going with bin and um pyromancer you only need a couple tokens to make it really good so yeah i don't i don't i mean i'm with you these cards are theoretically playable i i don't i don't expect them to see in, t- in top eights i'm putting zero for both I can't shake the feeling that someone's going to build a deck that is otherwise a reasonable deck that uh, happens to include one of these. Similar to how popular uh, Aegis of the Gods was, for example, or the the Prophetic Flame Speaker example. Mm-hmm. I think you could put these into a shell and make top eight with it. I just don't think that's the best version of these builds. So I'm inclined to go with a non-zero number especially on Monastery Swift Spear, and especially because, again, of the success of the Blue-Red Delver deck in Legacy. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, I feel like I'm giving these cards short shrift, but I don't think my prediction's wrong. <laughs> I'm going to go one for Monastery Swift Spear. Okay. Because I genuinely think someone's just going to straight-up copy that Legacy deck and succeed to some degree with it. Interesting. All right. Okay. You're on the re- What's that? You're on the record. I'm on the record. Next card's an interesting one, another subtle variant of something we know quite well. Stubborn Denial for blue is an instant counter-target non-creature spell unless its controller plays, pays one. Ferocious, if you control a creature with power four or greater, counter that spell instead. So this is the, this is the love child of Force Spike and Spell Pierce, countering something unless they pay one more, but it's only non-creatures. And then it has that extra ferocious added on, which yeah. I have to be honest is probably not going to trigger very often in vintage, even if this card saw play. Yeah, there are no creatures in Delver that have four power or more. <laughs> in your list, no, but Tarmogoyf is obviously the go-to for an example of this. Yeah. I mean, and, and, and if Tarmogoyf he's playing right now, I know it's very much on the down, but I would counter that by saying that if anyone chose to play this card, they would almost certainly add some Tarmogoyfs. Of course. Or some other yeah. creature with poor power yeah. to that list. I mean, we need to get out of the context of Delver and yeah. evaluating cards from this set. <laughs> That's pretty funny that this deck, this set is very Delver friendly. But so let's talk about other decks. Grixis Control. Does Grixis Control ever have a creature with power four or greater? Yeah, Blightsteel Colossus. There you go. So no. And yeah. <laughs> uh, Blue Angels, all of those creatures cap out at three power. Restoration Angels. Restoration Angel, yeah, Vendillion Click. Trinket Mage, that kind of stuff. So no four powers there. Uh, does Oath ever have a creature with four power in play? Yeah, but they don't need four spike once they do. <laughs> um, <laughs> so that's really the thing. Is it, uh, or, or let's one look at, man a counter spell more? Yeah, that too. Um, Bug Fish, same answer as Rug. Really, Tarmogoyf is the only creature that deck re- that deck really plays. So in a legacy bug context, bug. sorry, what? Yeah, Bug the Bug. The best bug decks do not play Tarmogoyf. Right. Agreed. I mean, the best aggro control decks don't play Tarmogoyf. Yeah, this, I'm just... this card is a force spike, a worse force spike in vintage. Yeah. You surveyed the landscape. I think so. I'm a zero. Worse force spike and a worse spell pierce, I guess is the best way to put it. The but only I... way this would be better than spell pierce is if you reliably had a four power creature in play. So then I think we should link to the show notes to my um, Eternal Central article on designing for vintage because all these cards illustrate what I sort of, one of the things I talked about, which is sort of extreme conditionalities. Mm-hmm. You know? Um, we certainly got that with the Delve cards, and this is another kind. Yeah. I I do not... I think we're both going to say zeros for this stubborn denial. But uh, to your point just now, I do not want to imply that this card is badly designed or this is a bad card not by any stretch. 
it just so happens that even in a format that heavily features creatures these days, as we've observed a lot in the last few years, vintage decks, vintage games commonly include creatures. It's just there's a pretty big gap between one and two power and 11 power. (laughs) That's kind of the way the vintage landscape is. The only other decks that have stuff in between there are workshops, and workshops don't play one mana counter spells right. that aren't mental misstep. Okay. Zeros for stubborn denial. Now let's talk about an interesting one. The Jeskai Ascendancy. This card costs blue, red, white. It's an enchantment. Whenever you cast a non-creature spell, creatures you control get plus one, plus one until end of turn. Untap those creatures. Whenever you cast a non-creature spell, you may draw a card. If you do, discard a card. Now, this is a combo engine enabler. There's already been a lot of talk about this deck being quite good in modern. And for anyone who doesn't know, that deck basically is just mana creatures and cantrips, cheap spells, designed to get one or more mana creatures into play, Jeskai Ascendancy into play, and then chain spells, untapping said mana creatures, generating cards and or mana advantage in the process, because you're looting while you do it. So it it wants to have basically almost an even mixture of one mana creatures that produce mana and one or fewer mana spells that let you look at stuff, and then you just uh, chain through your deck and then storm them out that way. All of those cards are clearly available in Vintage as well. There's not too much more that Vintage does that you can't do in Modern in these in these capacities. Obviously, things like Time Walk and Ancestral are an upgrade. But in a deck that hinges, or a combo that hinges on playing a mana creature and then untapping and playing a combo engine, I think obviously it has an uphill battle in Vintage. That said, we've seen Elves make top eights in Vintage. <laughs> Almost anything goes in Ohio, right? Yeah. So we it, we would be remiss if we didn't touch on a combo engine enabler such as this that's readily built in Vintage, but also not very good. Steve, there's plenty of second and third tier combos in Vintage. You think there's any value in this? You think there's any value in putting together a deck that just has this effect in addition to what it already does? Oh, God. Well, it's, isn't there another card like Glimpse besides this? What's the other one? And there's also Skull Clamp in the format. That's true. Skull Clamp is something that Modern cannot do, which is pretty good at, at facilitating this combo if you have just the creatures but not the cards. Yeah. And is there another card like this? Well, there's no card that does quite as much as this does, but I would say Intruder Alarm is a good example, which is a blue enchantment for three that says whenever a creature comes into play, I think, you untap all creatures you control. Let me double check. Intruder Alarm... Creatures don't untap during their controller's untap steps. Whenever a creature enters the battlefield, untap all creatures. So Intruder Alarm, which has been used as a combo enabler before, especially in something like Elves, has the untap your creatures part of this, not the looting part, though. It's fascinating that this card is so obviously a combo engine enabler. It's not like Wizards doesn't develop those kind of things. Look at Yongmoth's Bargain or whatever. Yeah. But it's just so obvious that, hey, if I throw in elves and cantrips, this card lets me just cycle through my whole deck. (laughs) (laughs) It just seems, I don't know, seems so oddly obvious that it does all of these things. Oh, and I should also point out that it's also growing your creatures. So if any of your creatures have do not have summoning sickness, if they can, if any of any of them can attack, you can just chain together five, ten spells and just kill your opponent without having storm or found anything of relevance. Just Gitaxian probe, preordain, blah blah blah. Oh, look, I've got ten mana, but I guess I'll move to my combat step and kill you. <laughs> yeah. 
I, I, I still want to get your thoughts on this thing, but I genuinely don't think that the combo as laid out in modern is has any application in vintage, just because it's so tactically weak. Yeah, I mean, the, the casting cost is the first <laughs> the first piece that I would just focus on. I, I can't possibly see this getting me into play. I mean, white, red, and blue? <laughs> well, I would say that if we were outside the context of this particular combo, I would completely agree with you. This is like a turn three and a half play or whatever in vintage. But the combo in question is predicated on mana creatures. So the mana base for this deck includes things like four noble hierarchs, right? Yeah. So it helps to ameliorate the fact that the casting cost is so bad. The idea for a deck like this in modern is to kill them on turn two. You play turn, I mean, that's perfect world, but you play turn one noble hierarch, turn two player second land, cast Jeskai Ascendancy, cast Gataxian Probe, win. Now that's a pretty specific combination of cards. It's going to happen rarely, but it has that potential. That's why I say the, the mana cost is mitigated by the fact that the deck is predicated on having all the mana creatures in it. In Vintage, it's still a turn two combo, just like in in Modern. In fact, it might even be less reliable in Vintage because <laughs> you'd be, your deck would be muddied up with things like Ancestral Recall and Yawgmoth's Will or something. Mm-hmm. And Force of Will. In Modern, it's going to be much more streamlined because it has to be and it can be. Well, yeah, I'm, I just... I don't see it. <laughs> it seems like every other set review, we invariably end up talking about some kind of engine card that could be built into a potent deck, goldfish-wise, but is just too fundamentally weak to the features of the format. Force of Will is a big one, but this combo deck could play Force of Will. But obviously, workshops are a problem. You're not going to chain together spells if there's Sphere of Resistance in play, or any number of other things, namely Chalice of the Void. So you would have to invariably water this deck down to the point where it wouldn't be nearly as reliable, which is why the only reason I think this card could see play is if it could be grafted into an otherwise good deck that featured these kind of creatures and spells. Mm -hmm. And there simply isn't such a deck. The only mana creature that sees any play in Vintage is Deathrite Shaman and aforementioned Noble Hierarch. And those are good cards, but... A deck that does this is going to require a threshold of those cards. And also, Deathrite Shaman doesn't facilitate this combo because it can't be repeatedly tapped for mana. So while Noble Hierarch is a vintage playable creature, I don't think there's any other way that you can graft this into an existing deck. I'm going zero on Jeskai Ascendancy. Yes, I think we've spent enough time on that card. Let's talk about Ugin's Nexus. And I don't know if I'm pronouncing it correctly, if it's Ugin or Ugin or what. Five mana, Legendary Artifact which I like already. If a player would begin an extra turn, (laughs) read vintage, that player skips that turn instead. (laughs) Hold on. Steve was laughing. That player skips that turn instead. So if a player would begin an extra turn, they don't. If Ugin's Nexus would be put into a graveyard from the battlefield, again, read vintage, instead exile it and take an extra turn after this one. So, aspiring uh, Koldotha Forge Master players out there, how would you like to simultaneously <laughs> disable your opponent's Time Walk and Time Vault combos? Yes. And then, when it's convenient for you, take an extra turn. Yes. And if they try to destroy it, take an extra turn. Yes, yes. I'm going to do... Let's just do this. Kevin, look up the number of Forge Master decks in the last couple months. There's this This seems to me like it's a very strong one-up in that deck. It's just, at least it's a cyborg card, if anything. I just searched for Forge Master's results, and it looks like there's roughly a billion of them. <laughs> no, seriously. In September, Forge Master made four top eights. In August, five. 
in July, it's like 10. Forgemaster is a consistent performer, even though it is not necessarily the most popular workshop deck at any given moment these okay. days. So so how many in September, August, and July? Uh, four, four to 10 across those months. And September probably wasn't fully reported as of this time, so it's probably more like six to 10 through that time period. I'm going to predict that half of them will play one of these. Yeah. That's going to be my number. So, so about 25 to 30 appearances would suggest somewhere around 12 to 15 using your calculus, I think. Yeah. A very reasonable approach, in my opinion, and a good starting point. Would any deck other than Forge Master play this card? Really hard to imagine. It's really hard to imagine, I agree. While it's completely castable, sure. uh, any deck like Turbo Tez or anything with Manage Rain or any obviously anything other than with Workshops that wasn't Forge Master could still play this. The, the issue is not the castability. Of course. The issue is, yeah, the issue is getting the additional benefit out of it and be, and reliably getting it into play, which Forge Master does both things. This is like <laughs> what Tezzeret is to Time Vault. <laughs> <laughs> I would I would also just like to to point out that Tinker gets you access to this card as well. Can you envision any scenario in which a Grixis or other similar Tinker deck would play this? Again, Tinker may get you it, but it doesn't trigger both. It doesn't put it into play and and the other trigger. That's that's the thing. Yeah. So you would only be doing it as a proactive defense against your opponent's key vault. Yeah, and then you just win, and then you win. Eventually, you just win the game. So you're on your opponent's. Let's see how this would work. Um, yeah, you you get this in play. Let's say your opponent goes to try, just tries a time walk. You tr- you you tinker it into play with the Forge Master, and then so they don't get their time walk. Mm-hmm. And then the next turn, you just uh, you know Forge Master it away and go for something enormous that kills them. And if they have Key Vault, you just have to keep it into play, keep it in play until. Um, until yeah. you're ready to win. So if they have key vault, well, th- what do you mean until you're ready to win? That's the key. I, so I was have- just sorry. There's there's a there's a two thoughts there. One is that your examples are spot on. I think this card though informs an increase in blightsteel colossus in said forge master decks because think about it. You tinker this away for the blightsteel, and you immediately get an extra turn to kill them with blightsteel. It's like lightning greaves in that sense. Oh my god! Yeah, sorry. So <laughs> so activating forge master, removing this. To get blight steel, then you just take your extra turn and attack with your blight steel. Wow, that's <laughs> right. Um, here's a trick though. So your opponent has time vault and key in play. Oh, oh, okay. So if they have Tezzeret in time vault, you can just do this on their end step. You can just forge master this away on their end step. But if they have key in time vault, you have to leave it out. You have to if you, because if you don't, you will get an extra turn. But then they can activate the key after this res- trigger resolves. Yeah. They're their time walk will resolve first, right? So how would it actually play out? They'll so let's actually I don't know how this stacks. <laughs> so okay. <laughs> you're you're gonna look this up, aren't you? Yeah. Okay. So um <laughs> your opponent has key vault in play and they go pass and you go on your end step, uh, I'm gonna forge master this away. This triggers and I'm not sure how the rules how the whole rules sort this out, but assuming turns stack, they can um and it's and assuming it's from the top down you if they were to respond to the trigger by casting time vault this one would resolve first so you would actually want this to resolve first and then you would activate when you get priority back you would activate the voltaic key on the time vault to take on the turn so you would take the first turn with the key vault and then this would still be on the stack but as long as you keep key vaulting i think you would continue to have the turn i think what's I think, the rule i think that's correct and the relevant rule here 
I believe is <laughs> is 500.7. Some effects can give a player extra turns. They do this by adding the turns directly after the current turn. If a player gets multiple extra turns, or if multiple players get extra turns during a single turn, the extra turns are added one at a time. The most recently created turn will be taken first. So you are correct. Extra turns are treated some, very similar to the stack itself in that if I get one and you get one, you get yours first. Last so yeah, so you have to so you can't you basically can't beat an active key vault with this unless your opponent taps out, right? So if they some for, for some foolish reason tap out and can't activate their key thinking they have no use for it or something, then you can forge master this away. You'll get your extra turn, and they'll be locked out of getting theirs. So that seems like a pretty rudimentary play mistake, but it could happen if players not mindful or they don't know the rules. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that—that's certainly possible that someone won't know. <laughs> oh, <laughs> sure. It's, it's yeah. A... I mean, dueling extra turns is not a common thing, as much as extra turns are <laughs> popular and vintage. <laughs> extremely uncommon. <laughs> yeah. um, but 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 so just, it, it just does it means that you need to be a little bit careful about about you. It's pretty um, funny. I mean, if there was an effect like say one of the Jace's ultimates that'll put stuff from libraries directly into play, if there was an effect that gave both players key vault at the same time, yeah, then whoever activates the key vault first loses. Loses. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> just have to keep passing the turn if you both have key vault right exactly and so it's the same basically with with yeah. ugin's nexus plus forge oh, master you and your opponent's key vault yeah you have to wait until you get like hercules or in like an ancient grudge and your opponent is compelled to activate first and then you go in response god that's crazy and that's oh and people hey our listeners right now listening to this have just learned something very important about vintage <laughs> You know what's funny about that, Steve, is that Hercules Recall is a trump, obviously. I mean, it just, whatever, because if they activate Forge Master, Hercules is going to put whatever they get in response into their hand either way. I'm right. sure there's other good things to choose there, but but just Hercules versus Ugin's Nexus plus Forge Master, Hercules wins that trump. But if it's Destroy, if it's um like Ancient Grudge, if you Forge Master away this Nexus, you can stop their Key Vault by going and getting another Nexus. Oh, God. So if it's just destruction... Oh, my God, that's right. Because they'll because they'll have had it on the stack. Right. Oh, they don't you take the extra turn them. until the current turn ends. So. Yeah, yeah. So double Nexus is a trump to Key Vault plus yeah. Shatter. So, so if you play this, you may actually want two of them, then. You may want... May. You may. I mean, it's pretty narrow. It's a pretty corner yeah. case. Keep in mind, too, that if you sacrifice your own Ugin's Nexus to get another one, you don't get the extra turn. <laughs> because the second one turns off the turn from the first. Yeah. Oh. Oh, that's right. It does. Yeah. It you prevent yourself from taking the extra turn. Oh, that's no good. <laughs> right. You can't just chain these into one another and get any real benefit that way in a vacuum. This is a fascinating well, effect. So it seems pretty clear that this is yeah. playable and will be played. The question is, to what degree? Interesting that, that works. they designed this for workshops. I mean, as if workshops needed this. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> and they do. They have Phyrexian Revoker and Nullrod. And, but no, no. But I, I do like the fact that this sweeps to hit Time Walk as well. That's nice. Yeah. Um, and it certainly will stop Time Walk and Tezzeret. But if they've got Key Vault, you, I'm just wondering, though, is there a use for it if they have key vault and you want to like you're going to have to use on your turn but is there a way you can just use it to try and win the game immediately is there anything you can do well aforementioned blight steel but if they have key vault you need to disrupt their key vault in a secondary way exactly if they have key vault is there anything you can do to try and win with a forge master deck on your turn well i would say 
invariably, it, the answer to that is yes, if you can disrupt their key vault. And by that, I mean, if you can maybe get out some tangle wires. A revoker, a revoker would be fine. Oh, yeah. sure. If you revoker their time vault and then get rid of this, yeah, yeah you'll win that way also. So it, yeah. it's synergistic with the other things workshop decks are already trying to do. If you yeah. just simply tangle wire them and they tap their key thinking it's better off for them. Right. Yeah. That's then a simple you can, thing. Then you can end step. Uh, sack it, uh, sack the tangle wire and this thing, and find blight steel. Right. Or steel hellkite, and then blow up their time bolt. That too, yeah. So yeah, this is this gives workshop players a lot of flexibility. I like this because it it has introduced a whole lot of tactical play. I think yeah. there's a lot of yeah. interaction now. I mean, workshops are already heavily interactive, but this is even more in different ways. Yeah, this is fun. Similar to our analysis of the soul of Phyrexia or the soul of new Phyrexia that we talked about before, in addition to the scuttling doom engine about how these one ofs have so much value, but they're inherently immediately playable. Right after our set review, I played in a vintage tournament on the east side of Michigan and I gained control of a soul of new Phyrexia with Dak Faden. (laughs) 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 The next tournament I played, I made that play. It was pretty fun. But I think it's prediction time. I mean, there's okay. a lot more you could say, I guess, about Ugin's Nexus, but obviously it's playable. It's just a matter of how much. Well, I, I said, like, whatever, 12 and a half. I'm going to take the under. I'm going to say 10. Okay. You think fewer than half of Forge Master play, just slightly, are going to choose this? Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I think it's anywhere in that range, I think. Yeah. I think one of the things we haven't discussed specifically is that, and you hit on it already. Revoker already plays this role vis-a-vis yeah, so disrupting. Yeah, and Null Rod. Forgemaster doesn't use Null Rod, but But yeah. they would have Revoker. So if you want to stop your opponent's key vault, you still have the ability to do it in a standard list. Yeah, it's nice It's nice to be able to do this at its speed, though, against Time Walk, too. Well, the same thing, apply, uh, same thing applies to Revoker, though. If your opponent... No, Revoker, Revoker's not an instant speed play. Oh, you're right, it is. Via Forgemaster, it is. It's functionally the same at stopping Key Vault as this card is. This is the only card... Except that it's not comparable to Lightning Bolt. This is the only card in the game that can stop a resolved time walk from operating. I'm not sure I'm ready to say that you're right on that. Just because... uh, No, there has to be something else. (laughs) (laughs) There's one exception previously, and it's Stranglehold from Commander which is the red enchantment that says your opponents can't search libraries if an opponent would begin an extra turn, that player skips that turn instead. So there's one previous card. Is that an instant? It's an enchantment. Red oh. enchantment from the original Commander product. Okay, so it does prevent a result time walk. All right. That's right. So this, and the two cards, Ugin's Nexus and Stranglehold, share a similar phraseology. Oh, interestingly, Stranglehold just prevents your opponents from taking extra turns. Ugin prevents everyone. <laughs> so the effect has existed before in a very similar way. But I'm just I just find myself wondering if some some players will look at their Forge Master list and say, hey, if I wanted to do this, I would just search out a revoker instead. But on the flip side, there's also that win the game aspect. So if your opponent doesn't have Key Vault, they're not playing Tezzeret. Let's say they're just playing uh Blue Angels. Your opponent's playing Blue Angels, right? They let you have a Forge Master, but they are they're disrupting you in other ways, maybe such that you don't know exactly what you could get. But you can see an opening on their end step where they've tapped down to some low amount of mana and you say, Aha, I Forge Master out my Ugin's Nexus, untap, 
Forge Master my Ugin's Nexus in the Blight Steel, take my extra turn and kill you. You know, it's it's Ugin's Nexus provides proactive value in addition to just defending against Key Vault and Time Walk. It's a way to kill someone somewhat out of the blue. Now you could argue that well, if you have Blight Steel on your list, you have that same benefit anyway. But I'm I'm just thinking that there are extra, there's one extra benefit. There's there's corner cases where surprising your opponent right. will be the difference, and maybe yeah. it's just a utility against Time Walk. It's just, yeah, it's just value. It's just value. Maybe that's it though. Is that you're 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 playing against Bomberman and they are they're ahead on board except you've got Forge Master, but they've got they've got uh, Bob and and some cards in hand and they rather than keep up Mana Drain, they just say, oh my opponent's playing Workshops, they, they I should take this Time Walk to get another land drop, right? Mm-hmm. So they just cast Time Walk, whereas they've they've got control of the game otherwise, and you bring out this in response, effectively countering their Time Walk and allowing you to untap and blight steal them. And they time. need that. And they need that time that Time Walk to win. Right, right. If they tap out of their yeah, they draw their whole deck. No, no. If they tap out of their Hercules Recall or Swords to Plowshare mana to play Time Walk, you can get one over on them. So this provides proactive uh, corner case examples as well. Better than just beating Key Vault. I don't know. I'm just, hmm. I'm kind of 50 50 on this one. We talked about things like Soul of New Phyrexia, where it provided corner case trumps to something like uh, Ancient Grudge, for example. I'm just wondering if. Are you going to go zero? No, I'm no, I'm not going zero. That's the thing. I I'm just looking for additions to your rubric of a certain portion of Forge Master decks are going to play this. I think a certain portion of them will play it just by default because it's of the value it provides. I'm wondering if there isn't more proactive value than we're giving it credit for. I'm wondering if it won't turn up in 70 or 80% of Forge Master decks. Fair enough. But I think that's counteracted by the fact that a lot of people will just look at Revoker and say Revoker is a more efficient version of this effect. Yeah. I'm inclined to take the under. What was the number you said again? 10. 10? Yeah, I'm inclined to take the under. And I'm not just going to go 9 either. I'm going to... I'm gonna go six. Fair enough. I think I think enough players will interpret this as simply too cute. I think it could be devastating to get this thing out, but I mean you're losing a lot of permanents in the process. But you get an additional turn, so. Yeah. I mean, this thing is gonna be lethal if you play this against Time Walk. Just lethal. Oh yeah, that's why. That's what I think. I mean, it's such value against the card Time Walk. I just don't know if it's good enough otherwise. It actually makes playing Time Walk kind of dangerous. It's like Notion Thief for Time Walk. <laughs> You're right. It's like Notion Thief for Time Walk. That's awesome. Well, we've come to the end of another set review. Not too many cards in Cons of Tarkir this time, but some really, really spicy ones that I think will be with us for a long time. And a, and a debate as to which card is actually going to be the best, which I think should be our question of the episode. Uh, definitely, definitely. Which Cons of Tarkir card do you think is going to be the best? Which of Dig Through Time or Treasure Cruise? <laughs> no, I'm just joking. We've got a legitimate contender in Ugin's Nexus as well, I think. So this set really does have some very interesting vintage potential. So let us know what you think. And thank you for listening to episode 39 of So Many Insane Plays. You can tweet us at many insane plays, email us at so many insane plays podcast at gmail.com. As always, and until next time, we wish you many insane plays.
Protected Nuts, Jay's Protected Gay. <laughs> <laughs>